man, Lauren, they're they're doing a lot of work over there, aren't they, right now? They are. They're tearing off the roof, and it's driving me crazy. This recording's about to get mental. Yeah! yeah. Thanks, David Caruso. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Watch If You Dare podcast, a horror movie podcast hosted by lover of these movies, Aaron, and a coward, myself. Joining me as always is my co-host, Aaron, and we actually have another returning guest, fresh off the house episode, one of the, our guests from there, Lauren. How are you doing today, Lauren? I'm great. So great to be here. You sound so genuine. I <laughs> And happy about the work going on in your apartment right now. They are. They announced that they're tearing off the roof and putting in a whole new roof over our apartment building and I'm on the top floor and I'm not super enthused. My cats are even less enthused. So it's been a fun couple of days. Yeah, I'd imagine. And we are back actually from our our holiday break and Aaron, I know you had quite the holiday being a retail boy. Yeah, I'm glad it's done. Uh, Everything's kind of wound down now. So I'm on the back end of it. I can finally kind of rest a little bit. So yeah, done so. So we're we're back in form, so we're going to get right into it. Like usual, we uh, we discuss things that we have consumed that are horror-related that we can kind of recommend to each other and our listeners. So we always go with the guest first. So Lauren, what have you been digging into lately that is horror-related? So I have been binge-watching the show Girls, but I do think that's a different <laughs> type of horror. Yeah. But uh, in terms of true genre-based horror, I played the game The Dark Pictures Anthology, Man of Madonna. which I think I'm one of the few people that remembers Until Dawn with any sort of affection. That, That will come back up. We'll circle back around to that. Oh, nice callback. <laughs> so I really enjoyed playing that game. And I think it was actually one of the first games I played on my PS4. And when this one came out, I was really excited about it. I will say didn't enjoy it as much. I think in Until Dawn, I actually wanted to save everyone. In this game, I wanted to kill all of them from the moment <laughs> they were introduced. <laughs> I mean, I actively was just waiting for several of them to die. In terms of a game, it had a lot more jump scares than Until Dawn, which I remember they had one or two and they were fairly well done, fairly subtle. But in this one, it was about every 30 seconds. And each time they did it, it was almost calling attention to itself in the most unnatural way. Are they like all telegraphed really loud to where like you kind of know they're coming and then they're not that effective? Oh, yes, it was like that. But then they also had a couple where they knew you were watching for a jump scare and anticipated it. Gotcha. So there's one, I guess this is a miniature spoiler, but you open a locker and there's nothing and it's it stays frozen on the locker and you're kind of like, okay, there's going to be a jump scare in three, two, one, and then nothing happens. And so the moment you're like, oh, okay, I guess there's not one, then like a decapitated head pops out at you. And, and it was just very... It reached a point where it got annoying rather than even startling. It was just like, okay, let me wait. All right, there's a jump scare. Let's keep going. But overall, the story was really interesting. Actually, speaking of kind of being on topic, uh, it's based on a ghost ship. So for a lot of it, they're going around this abandoned, very old, very rusted ship. And there's a lot of kind of creepy architecture and places that are really dark that you still have to go through. And all in all, I would recommend it. Isn't the story kind of loosely based off of a real life story that has been not proven as false. It hasn't been proven as true, but it's kind of up in the air 
somewhere about how there was a ship during World War II or something that showed up on the coast? Yes. So in the game, it's a World War II battleship. Or in real life, I think it was actually in the 50s they found it. But it was a ship that they found. It was called the Orang Medan, uh, O-U-R-A-N-G. And it was found somewhere in, I think, the Pacific Ocean. And all of the crew was just in these horrifying, contorted positions, all of them dead. But there was nothing clearly wrong with the ship. And when whoever it was that found the ship went to tow it into port, uh, they found that the ship actually caught fire out of of nowhere and just burned and sank. Huh. And so it is sort of this mythological story at this point. But the game was good. I mean, my main critique is I think they're going to start doing a series of these. And one of my favorite things about Until Dawn, another thing that will come up in a minute, is the psychiatrist character. Yeah. And it was actually incorporated into the story. And in this one, it's like a curator and he doesn't show up that much and it's not clear why he's there. And it just wasn't as cohesive. But I don't regret playing it. I did get to vicious kill the one character I really hated. So, you know, fun video games. But beyond that, uh, the other thing I did is I finally saw Glass, which is the M. Night Shyamalan sequel to Unbreakable and Split. And I didn't see Split. Uh, I've kind of been off the M. Night Shyamalan bandwagon for a while. But watching this movie did remind me that I really like him as a filmmaker. I think now in retrospect, it's not a straightforward horror horror movie. But there were definitely a lot of images that were so creepy and so unsettling especially with Samuel L. Jackson like they they did an amazing job and I did it did make me want to go and see Split so it kind of brought me back to M. Night Shyamalan where I was I do like his ability to tell this amazing story in such a strong visual way yeah I will totally still go to bat for him like as a filmmaker as a director as a like technician he just needs to fucking get someone else writing stuff for him like that's been the problem with all of his recent stuff is he needs someone either to co-write with him or he needs to do somebody else's material because that's the weak point he's still a fantastic filmmaker Mm -hmm. just the story stuff is kind of where the movies fall apart unfortunately and that's what he was known for originally yeah well the, the interesting thing is that i know like the visit he directed produced and wrote and people have been going up to bat for that movie i haven't seen it before well, people but. like split too and you know split was fine if you have any issues with like depictions of mental illness and like how that stuff works you're gonna pull your fucking hair out with split because oh, then i probably won't like it <laughs> It is, like, the most ridiculous depiction of, like, what multiple personality disorder looks like. Oh, wow. So, just FYI on that. But, again, like, I'll also go to bat for him, like, as a filmmaker. He just needs to do somebody else's actual stuff. Somebody else needs to write for him. Mm-hmm. I will. I actually was tempted to watch Split, because I have been on this kind of Shyamalan kick, uh, to sort of contrast it with this one, I guess, as spoiler alert, talking about multiple personalities. But I couldn't find it for free anywhere, and I was like, uh, I'll be damned if I'm going to spend money on this. So (laughs) I didn't watch it, but (laughs) I tried. I'm surprised it's not on some kind of streaming. It seems like, like it's been, it's recent enough. It seems like it should be on like Netflix or Amazon or something. It did. It was really weird. And I mean, I could find it, but you had to pay money for it and, you know, grad school. So that just doesn't happen. (laughs) But 
yeah, I mean, those are kind of the two main things I've really been consuming horror-wise. Again, aside from HBO's Girls, which I almost texted you guys to ask if we could do an entire episode on Girls, but I acknowledge <laughs> that's not what this podcast is, so I'll spare you. Yeah, that is totally a different flavor of horror, for sure. Yep. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, Aaron, what ha- have you been able to get into anything with working through the holidays at all? Or? Um, yeah, and the problem is I'm sure that I have kind of taken in more than what I'm going to talk about. I just can't remember what because I wasn't necessarily writing things down um, as time went on so I could remember it for recording. But I rewatched a uh, documentary called Electric Boogaloo, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films, which is a fucking blast if you're into like trash genre cinema like I am. It's just documenting like the entire rise and fall of Canon Films and Golden and Globus that like ran the whole thing and how those guys were like fucking maniacs and cheapskates and like had an insane work ethic just go 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 and cranked out movies but like you know it's garbage movies for the most part it's all stuff that like a lot of people who like grew up during the 80s have that nostalgia for like Masters of the Universe and the early Jean-Claude Van Damme films and a lot of like Toby Hooper stuff that I genuinely like Life Force and Invaders from Mars and you know Derek you and I both fucking love Texas Chainsaw he did, you know, the second one under canon, and that was kind of the whole deal was like, we'll give you a three-picture deal, here's a shit ton of money, you can do whatever you want for two of them, but the third has to be a sequel to Texas Chainsaw, and just do whatever you want, we don't care. And so, of course, Toby Hooper was like, cool, opposite direction, make it a fucking comedy. <laughs> but yeah, that documentary is pretty wild and fun. Heather and I rewatched Midsummer with... Heather's sister, my sister-in-law, um, while she was home from school, and we all super enjoyed. I think Heather and I, like, really, really, really dug that movie more the second time around, for sure, because we weren't, like, so wrapped up in, like, the plot, and we were able to, like, really soak it in. We watched the longer cut of it through iTunes, and on one hand, I like all of the extra relationship stuff that's embedded throughout the course of the plot, because it really kind of seals in, like, how fucking shitty Florence Pugh's situation is in that movie. <clears throat> but on the other hand, it spends more time dealing with the students talking about their project for grad school and all that kind of stuff. And like that gets kind of tedious. I think it works better when like a character's decision regarding that kind of comes out of nowhere and it just makes it extra shitty. But if you have all that build up beforehand, eh. But dear Lord, the fucking production quality in that movie, the acting, just all the visual stuff the cinematography, the music especially. The music struck me so hard this time. It's so good. Just, I love that movie. And I think that's, it's either going to be down to that or Doctor Sleep, I think is my favorite horror movie of the year. But both are definitely in my like overall top five for the year for sure. By the way, when your sister-in-law was in town, were you able to talk to her about Black Christmas in regards to her sorority? No, a little bit. Like I, I meant to bring it up and we just, we forgot about it. I told Lauren like that's what we did for a Christmas episode episode and the first thing she did was go hello 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 Yeah, that accent is just bananas. You guys were right to point that out. I, my gosh. Yeah, her her accent is all over the yeah. place in that movie. <laughs> Heather and I also watched 
Parasite, uh, which is Bong Joon-ho's new movie, and it is excellent. I loved it. The performances in it are great. I think everything that it has to say about the class differences that we are dealing with now, kind of on a global scale, you know, it's not just an American thing or a Korean thing or any other country. Like, you know, just showing the difference in how the 1% lives compared to everybody else and how there is just such a gap of understanding, like, where people are coming from and what their situation is and just that lack of empathy and some of the weirdness of, like, getting to be really friendly with somebody who essentially works for you and you kind of have that weird connection and you want to be friendly with them and engage with them. But then at the end of the day, it still boils down to, like do this thing that I'm paying you to do and how like that kind of veneer of friendship just instantly vanishes and that dynamic is different. I am not going to talk about like the plot of that movie much. I think it's something that like people just need to go into cold and just let the movie happen because not only like is the buildup and once you kind of see and figure out what's happening and what's going on it gets interesting, but like it takes some turns two or three different times in the movie where things escalate and get even weirder. But yeah, easily one of the best movies of this whole past year, period. It's definitely worth seeing in a theater if it's playing near you, which that is what it is. But yeah, the movie was fantastic. The other movie that I watched, which was also delightful and has been on lots of not only like top 10 horror movies of the year list, but top 10 like movie movies of the year list, um, is called One Cut of the Dead. And it is on Shudder right now. It's a Japanese movie. All I will say is the premise is a group of filmmakers want to make a zombie movie and do it like in just one take, like one long continuous take dot 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 and there's kind of a good twist so I'll, I'll say this the twist is not oh but the zombies are real like it's none of that kind of bullshit but if you're gonna watch it you have to stick through the first 30 minutes and trust me like get past that first hump because you're initially gonna be like what am I looking at this is kind of tedious is this all there is to this what's going on and it takes the first initial little twist and it completely morphs into something different and it will start to make sense pretty much immediately what what the movie's doing but it's so fucking impressive to see like oh you pulled off this one thing in the first part of this movie that's already a really cool technical feat but then for the movie to also then do this whole other thing and it be even more impressive it was great and it it has like the just most feel good make you fucking happy warm kind of ending to it and I like it's I hesitate to even call it a horror movie because it's more common about people making a horror movie than anything else but god it is so it like it gets all the like things right about making a movie and how much of a headache it is and how like so many things all have to come together and everybody has to be on the same page and everybody has to be like moving and working toward that one vision to like make it happen and the fact that like we have any movies that get made let alone good movies it's like still just such a miracle in a weird way but the movie is very much about that, but it's so fucking good. It's on Shutter again. Definitely check that out. Um, it's been on lots of like top lists, so it's absolutely worth your time. I remember hearing some stuff about it and looking it up, and it being one of the few movies on. And granted, I don't like, I don't judge all movies by Rotten Tomatoes as like the end all be all, but I use it from time to time as a, a helpful tool to just get an idea of what I'm getting into. But it is one of the few movies on there that has a hundred percent. 
yeah. uh, rating out of like over 70 reviews, which is incredible. Oh, that wow. is crazy how, yeah. how I was able and, to do And that. like I said, you have to stick with it because for the first piece, you're going to be like, what am I looking at? Like, what is this? What is all this hype about? What is everybody getting out of this movie? I don't get it. And there are two people that I work with that like started watching it and they were like, it was kind of boring and I didn't know like what was happening and I just didn't really get the appeal and it was kind of cheesy. I'm like, no, no, you got to fucking finish it. Like finish the movie, finish the movie, keep going. You like didn't get to where like things really change and morph and you understand what the movie's doing. So definitely, definitely check it out. But like I said, stick with it. Last thing I'll bring up. I read the first issue of Tales from Harrow County, which was great. I'm super excited to kind of see where that goes. I love the entire first series. This one's picking up a decade or so later. Isn't it taking place like during World War II? Yes, because a major plot point is that lots of families are getting, you know, their government letters and air quotes saying that like their sons have died in the war. But this time the story is following Bernice, who was like the best friend in the original series now that she's older and she's kind of taken over her grandmother's role in the community as kind of like kind of witch doctor voodoo lady but she's kind of using her skills to like help out the town like she's working with the local doctor and bringing him weird tinctures and things that she's made for people and she still like is friends with all the creppy things that live in the woods from the first series so it's it's off to an interesting start the art is still fantastic I'm really curious to see like where it goes from here so good first issue and i um, excited to catch the rest so I'm just I'm so happy Harrow County is back because yeah. what a good horror series that comic yeah. is and my sister-in-law Danielle actually got me the like fourth and final hardbound full like volume four of it so now I've got like the entire series in like a nice big format version so you can really really appreciate that artwork so I, I love that series I'm glad it's back for sure so that's all I've got Derek what about you so yeah, I have been digging into a lot of horror lately, but yeah, with video games, I had mentioned in the past that I'd played through Shadows of, Shadow of the Tomb Raider. I was kind of bouncing around games, trying to settle on trying out a new one, and sometime during the holidays, I decided to go back and play Control uh, by Remedy Entertainment, and man, I am kind of upset with myself for not playing this sooner, because I can safely say it is probably my game of the year for 2019, even more so than like Resident Evil to the remake. I'm kind of glad to hear that because I ended up with a free copy of it and I was like, this looks interesting. This looks up my alley. So, okay, that's good to know. And Lauren, I am glad you're on this episode with us because you two are the two that I would recommend this game to the most. I think both of y'all would really enjoy this game for similar and even different reasons from each other, but I think both y'all would enjoy it a lot. I don't want to dig into it too, too much just because there's so much that makes this game so much better when you find things out as you're going along with it but basically just kind of like a a basic premise and this isn't giving away anything because this is kind of stuff that happens in like the first 15-20 minutes but the game revolves around this entity this government entity called the Federal Bureau of Control which is kind of like a black ops secret government agency that is basically tasked with uh, looking into strange phenomenon and things that violate the laws of reality no one knows like how it started or like where it came from and you basically play as this woman 
named Jessie Faden, and she discovers the Federal Bureau's office, which the office is in this place called the Old House, which itself is like an object of power. And so it kind of fades in and out of reality. And it's in the middle of like New York City, but no one can see it unless you're looking for it because of like it being like a nexus for multiple realities. And in the oldest house, she she walks into the oldest house looking for something. You start off the game looking for something. She has like a vague connection to the uh, Bureau of Control that is revealed later on in the game. You're not sure why, but as she walks into the building, she finds out that this entity from another dimension called the Hiss has like invaded into reality and corrupted it and like has kind of taken over the building. And so like you're kind of going through it and like it has to do with objects of power and altered world events. You know how David Lynch takes the idea of like something unassuming or like a small town or a place being like a nexus for another reality is significant point being in like a mundane area, especially in like the revival for Twin Peaks. You know, that portal is in like a middle of nowhere village, I think in Utah or something like that. That same idea is kind of taken into this game where like the objects of power are very unassuming objects like a refrigerator, a balloon, uh, like a safe. And it's just for whatever reason, like they caused these things to happen. Since Bioshock, this is the first game where anytime I discover a log or pick up any documents, I immediately stop and read it or listen to it or watch it. Anyone who plays this game, I highly, highly recommend you do that. Read, watch, and listen to everything you pick up in this game because it makes the experience so much more creepy, so much better. It gives you an idea of what this universe is about. It's so creative. It takes like ideas of David Lynch, sliders, all this like sci-fi horror. It sounds a lot to me like uh, two different comic series, both from like Image, but it reminds me a lot of Gideon Falls and Injection. Yes. Like if you just like took the two of those things and kind of mushed them together, that's what it feels like to me. Yeah, it kind of is like that. Just the whole idea of places of power and like these objects distorting reality and it explaining other supernatural phenomenon in the world. Like I just did that so much but yeah the horror is very psychological this is very much also an action game though so oh i like that yeah and like the powers feel so good to use there's like telekinesis and things like that and i i've been using the telekinesis mostly in this game since the beginning of the game and it still hasn't lost its fun to it jesse herself is a good character all the characters you meet like the other uh, members of the bureau like uh the employees and other that you encounter and save and stuff like that all of them are great characters so far the mystery behind it is both creepy and fascinating so yes i'm gonna stop talking because i don't want to give away anymore but please do yourself a favor and go play control um the only thing i would say is that when you start the game i'm playing it on my ps4 uh you may need to adjust a little bit of like the camera sensitivity and some of the control sensitivity just because it was a little off for me but i heard that PC players don't necessarily have a problem with that um, and most people might not have a problem with that but it was just kind of like my own personal preferences I had to play around a little bit with the camera sensitivity and like the aiming sensitivity um, and I think I turned off the blur animation like anytime you like turn or move the camera it blurring just because hmm. it started to hurt my eyes a little bit but they give you all those options to do that so I can't complain and hold that against the game but yes probably my game of the year probably even a better horror game than even Resident Evil 2 the remake which I also loved this 
this year. So yes, check out Control. Another thing I've been digging into lately is uh, the documentary series called Hellier, which is all on YouTube. I've been hearing about it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's all on YouTube, but I think it's also on like Amazon Prime Video. And basically it starts off with this group of paranormal investigators going to Hellier, Kentucky, which is like this, not even a town or a village, like it's a township, like one of those middle of nowhere places. Um, and it's like an old dying township because like it, it used to have like a coal industry there, but that's been abandoned. And there's all kinds of like caves and coal mines around the town. And it starts off with like this guy getting an email uh, like back and forth back in like 2012 or something with someone who claims that they lived in Hellier and that they were being terrorized by like little creatures crawling out of the mine shafts and during the night. So they go and investigate and it basically has to do with the uh, goblins of Hellier, Kentucky, which you can also look up. It's like a mini Mothman type of event going on there. So they go there kind of investigating the goblins in the area and they find all these uh, synchronicities in the town. And I only watched season one. There's two seasons out. I just started season two yesterday and only watched about half the first episode. Each of them are like an hour or more long. Yeah. But it's fascinating because like they, they go from looking at the hobgoblins and goblins of Hellier into all these like weird ass synchronicities that start happening to them. And some of it is like for people who are more skeptics, some of it might be a little eye rolly because there are very much moments kind of like in ghost hunting shows where they're just like talking in darkness and waiting for things to happen and you like hear noises in the background. But honestly, I they seem so much more genuine than the ghost hunters do and they feel I feel like they didn't edit nearly as much as like the ghost hunting shows do. So it feels a lot more raw and yeah. honest, not even like watching for the supernatural elements of it. It very much captures the element of going to small town nowhere, middle of nowhere, uh, United States, and it having like a dark underbelly to it. Kind of that, just that dread and darkness uh, that you can feel sometimes when you're out in the middle of nowhere. And like, you know, these towns of 100, 200 people and even the people there kind of act a little strange and and like some of them are kind of like warning you and things like that. So it touches on a lot of those fears and anxieties. But yes, it is a must watch for anyone who has any type of um, affection for paranormal research and all that, but just even just horror in general. It's a very solid horror docu-series. So uh, yes, I recommend Hellier. Okay. Nice. So speaking of synchronicity and things going on in the background, the roofing guys have now been joined by the landscape crew. So there's going to be a lot of ambient noise in this episode, and I apologize. That's why Aaron gets... Uh, no money because we don't make money off this podcast to edit. Oh, so you're blaming your lack of funds on me, Derek? Thank you. <laughs> nah, it'll be it'll be fun. Uh, yet again, I gotta I gotta bring them up again. Uh, another dirty room dropped their third episode on Niagara Falls. <sighs> Just stop. No, please no. The best part is at the end of this episode, the third episode, they announced that the next series is another dirty room, New Orleans, and I cannot <laughs> wait. <laughs> So just a room in New Orleans. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I cannot wait. I really hope they at least go to one of those motels on Airline Highway that are just totally fronts for prostitution. Oh, no. Um, because those places definitely look like the place that would be on another dirty room. I won't spend much time on this just because I know Aaron hates it. So yeah, just go ahead and watch another dirty room. Dan Bell, it's all solid. I guess you got to let me know like where the places are because I'm kind of terrified to know if there's like anywhere that I have stayed 
stayed before, but I, I feel like at the same time, like, I wouldn't be staying at anywhere that this place would be going to, hopefully, but you never yeah. know with New Orleans. Um, but yeah, another thing I was doing, too, uh, just kind of to prep for this episode was I started, and speaking of New Orleans, too, I started watching kind of urban exploration videos, uh, specifically about Jazzland, Six, Six Flags Jazzland outside New Orleans. Yeah. Since it being abandoned since Hurricane Katrina, and just sitting out there, and you can just go on YouTube and, like, search, like, urban exploration Jazzland, and all the videos pop up, and they're all fascinating. They're all genuinely creepy. I might have brought this up on a past episode, or I, I can't even remember, but uh, I just decided to watch uh, watch them again. I've watched a lot of them already, multiple times, and like I said last time, or I've said in the past, this would be where the Joker would hide out if this was Gotham City. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's strange. It's, there is just something, we talked about this a little bit before we recorded just now about there being some kind of interest and pull to abandoned buildings and abandoned areas like this um, and them just kind of being left behind um, and just kind of seeing the elements and nature take them over. So yes, do yourself a favor and watch some abandoned theme park videos of uh, Six Flags New Orleans. So on that note, quick little like mini discussion to have before we get into the movie. Uh, yeah, a big element of this movie specifically is the actual place where the movie's filmed, the Danvers State Hospital. You know, notoriously this was like a huge insane asylum back in the day. Lots of people went there. It was kind of a mecca for lots of like cutting edge new techniques, but also some like really iffy stuff like uh, prefrontal lobotomies were potentially like started at Danvers. So a place like this, like just being there, there is like a weird sense of presence and character that like the actual building seems to exude. And it's kind of the same with the abandoned Jazzland park like you were just talking about. So what specifically like draws people to these abandoned places? Like why do people have such an itch to go to spots like this to run around and explore them and you know what draws us to those places but also like why are those places also like really creepy at the same time so one thing that really stood out to me and even as you were mentioning Jazzland Derek is that aside from almost even being old there's something about an empty building that just automatically I mean you mentioned character of the building it, it almost the emptiness has a presence in the building yeah and I think there is just this underlying feeling of going into one of these places that just, for some people, I think just is very kind of intoxicating. Sure. This is one thing. I've never gone urban exploring. I have too strong a knowledge of, granted, with my limited knowledge of architecture, I just do not ever want to fall through a floor. So that is <laughs> yeah. a, a life goal for me. But uh, I will say the building I work in on campus is actually one of the oldest on campus. And when you go in and it's empty, it feels so different. Like the outside is looks very old, but the inside is pretty contemporary. It's like regular doors from the 80s, 90s, every looks new but it is so scary to go down these long hallways with plenty of doors and just feeling like even though you know no one's around there's no sound that you're not by yourself yeah and I think that feeling of unease is very attractive 
to some people. I know it is for me because uh, that's kind of the type of horror that I, I get into. One of the things, I mean, going back to Control actually for a second, Control very much feeds upon those kind of fears of like walking into a gigantic room or a gigantic building and there's no one there except for this presence or entity that wants to kill you. But like even then, like and during the quiet moments, it might even be creepier than during that. The moments you're actually being attacked because you're kind of anticipating when is it going to happen next and there it feels like there's always something behind the corner when there's nothing there and like you said the emptiness itself is almost its own presence and I kind of get it I kind of get the thrill seeking nature of that for someone who finds classic horror tropes of like jump scares terrifying the idea of more dread and slow burn is more intoxicating to me than than just kind of like a roller coaster ride like a, yeah. a James Wan film or something like that because I remember one time during I want to say it was like a year or two after Katrina I went with and I want to say it was with Sean Mars and his dad and some of his like one of his dad's contractor friends I don't know I need to after we air this episode I'll need to talk to Sean but I feel like I remember one time going to some of the uh, abandoned like an abandoned place in a Katrina building and felt it there but there was one time where I swear we went to like this kind of gutted out parking garage in New Orleans that was like really hit and it was near downtown it was really hit by the storm and we were going in there to like clear some stuff out and we found that like on like the third or fourth floor of it you know where the utility closets are in the corners of parking garages yeah we walked into one of those utility closets and it was fully lived in like there was a bed on the floor with a mattress furnishing like it wasn't like a homeless person either squatted there they had like full furnishing and everything and they just fucking abandoned it no one had been there for a while we could tell i think we winded up having to start like move that person's shit out of there yeah full mattress and everything but it was so unsettling to see like middle of downtown new orleans as soon as we walk in like all the background noise of a city kind of feels like it disappeared and then to walk in on like something that is a pretty normal setup like someone's room being in a weird out of place location um, again like control in like a utility closet in a parking garage and they turn that into their like one bedroom apartment somehow yeah Yeah. so going back to Parasite there are definitely elements of that throughout that movie and that's all I'm gonna say (laughs) so yeah it is interesting actually bringing up finding something weird where I think that is part of the thrill of just what will you find because I could conceive of say going into like an abandoned house and then you're just looking and it's like oh this is what they used way back when and then this is a newspaper from the 40s and then you find like a box of human teeth or something crazy and it just (laughs) completely changes the experience which not to equate those two things but uh i did have this day where i was working in my office on a saturday the building's empty it felt creepy but i got over it and i was sitting there on my laptop and randomly the power just cut out and it was immediately like i was so conscious of how empty the building was i was so conscious of that feeling again and it was just that moment where everything turned around so again it wasn't like finding a box of human teeth but that moment where you do become conscious of how different the space you're in is totally especially when you know for certain that like somebody was there before you it's not like going to the woods and you kind of have the feeling of like i'm here i'm by myself there's that isolation but 
it's like going to the woods and stumbling across, like we just said, a living area and knowing that like somebody was there, like their presence still kind of haunts that specific spot and you feel uneasy because you're in that space, you know, so that's definitely like a lot of what I think draws people to those kinds of places and you know that's a lot of what makes this movie specifically so haunting is just all the like history that we see there and we'll talk about a little bit deeper but they basically didn't have to set dress anything for this movie like they just went and shot there and they brought in like a very very small number of props but pretty much everything that we see in the movie was there and that makes it even more unsettling knowing that what you're watching is real in that sense you know it's not staged like any other movie would be they didn't just make a abandoned hospital from scratch or go to like another active hospital and just kind of spray some fake rust and like grime on the walls like this is a real semi-dangerous dangerous place um that that definitely imbues the movie with a different sense to it for sure i know for me like that fear of not even a fear there's almost like even a little bit of an excitement for me of like going somewhere abandoned and uh, hoping i find some dark secret that like kind of flips the whole thing on its head it kind of goes hand in hand with the trope i always go back to of like small town nowhere having uh like a lovecraftian dark secret to it i just love that idea of like these unassuming spaces having like this weirdness or darkness to it that unless you're looking for it you wouldn't really find it but it's always there the fact that it's always there in the background is what makes it creepy yeah totally do you have any uh, places that you've been to Mansfield well like I mentioned on a previous episode we definitely had you know a haunted house in our neighborhood that was near one of the elementary schools that we grew up in and you know we did go there two or three times and I think finally the last time that we went we realized that like somebody had just been there again that like weird haunted kind of presence because we found like grocery store bags full of like canned foods and stuff so somebody had like literally just been there squatting and we just didn't want to stick around in case like they were still there or like maybe they were dangerous or whatever I think I've also mentioned on a previous episode before too but I have lots of memories of being at our church after hours growing up because my mother was on like the music team and being there either like really early before the church is active and there's lots of people around or afterward and the vast majority of the church like the lights are turned off and all the rooms are empty and just like the stillness of being in a giant building like that that's empty you know and just wandering around as a kid just trying to find something to do like the weirdness of that for sure and lastly like I can't remember when or who but at some point when we were in undergrad the commons building got torn down and that was like the old cafeteria and everything else but it was still there like our freshman maybe even sophomore year before they tore it down I do remember like a bunch of us went in and kind of made our way through that building and we ended up on the roof but you know same thing just kind of going through that building after hours when we definitely should not have been in there because it was like condemned by that point (laughs) oh no (laughs) I I never got the chance to do that because I think they either tore it down before I even realized or I just didn't do it yeah there were a couple times where I I got into the science tower um, after hours uh, actually to study like one of our buddies would have like a key to because they would allow like science majors to go there during the middle of the night and all that if they needed to do work and that building was fucking terrifying like late at night when no one was there because it was like had old pipes and things like that so it was constantly yeah. <laughs> making creaks and noises and I was able to get on the roof of that place a few times as well and that's you know one of the tallest buildings on USM's campus and that was pretty crazy to be up there but yeah I I find all this stuff fascinating this is my shit I uh there's really nowhere 
for me right now to go urban exploring, but I don't think I would do it anyway by myself. Did you ever go to the burned down hospital in, what was it, Petal, Mississippi? No, I, I never went there. Um, we never like went out to Petal for any real reason. Yeah, I'm, I couldn't remember if it was you or someone else that like told me about that place and brought me there one time. No, nah, it wasn't me. But yeah, those are kind of the three instances I can think of specifically. Other than like just wandering into like clearly abandoned houses and stuff growing up when we were just kind of running the neighborhood exploring. But yeah, like it that is definitely like a big theme of this movie is just the fact that the hospital has such a presence in this movie and you can feel it. And the fact that the movie is shot on video and it has that kind of verite feel to it. It just gives the movie like a completely different character than most everything else that you'll see that kind of covers the same topics otherwise. Yeah, and before we dig into the movie, just a little pause for the cause real fast. What's up, fellow spoopy people? Are you shopping for horror movie merch to match the fear in your heart? Do you want to show your love and fandom for horror, or are you just looking for the perfect gift for that special mutant in your life? If so, check out Nightmare Threads, your one-stop shop for all things horror made for fans by fans. NightmareThreads.com offers clothing, apparel, and merch for numerous horror movies, TV shows, and other macabre pop culture. Nightmare Threads also has original horror content, articles, news, and more. So you can support us by supporting them. Check out our show's Twitter and Facebook pages for our unique referral link or use coupon code WATCHIFYOUDARE, all one word, no spaces, at checkout to save 10%. So just go to NightmareThreads.com and again, use our referral link or the code WATCHIFYOUDARE to save 10%. Watch horror, love horror, support horror. Shop Sally! And we're back. Take it away, Mansfield. Cool, cool. So the movie that we are going to be discussing today is 2001's Session 9, directed by Brad Anderson. And I got to get construction crews in here by Columbus Day, so you got to guess for how long? I've got four really good guys. One week, we're gone. That's fast. I need the job. So the loonies are outside in the real world, and here we are with the keys to the loony bin, boys. <laughs> Might actually want to be grateful. You're about to make some decent money. What's the catch? Patricia Willard scandal, 1984. I want you to try to remember what happened 24 years ago. Use your imagination. The shrinks figured that with these new techniques they designed, they could release hidden memories. You can hear me. You okay? I want to go home. I wouldn't tell anybody about this. If they find out about Hank, they're gonna find out about the others. Quit of the others. <laughs> I wanna come home. I am so sorry. David Caruso himself is in this. Pre-like self-parody, too. Yes. With the best line in movie history, which we will talk about. We will get to, (laughs) yes. So yeah, 2001, American psychological horror film directed by Brad Anderson. Uh, What else has Brad Brad Anderson done in his career? He's done a handful of things. Um, He's done a lot of TV, too, recently, but he did The Machinist, which was the first thing that I saw of his years ago. That's the movie where it's a psychological horror movie, too, but that's the one where famous 
obviously Christian Bale dropped down to like 90 pounds and became like a fucking skeleton man for a little bit. Um, that's just about a guy who like has massive insomnia and is just withering away and going crazy. He also directed Trans-Siberian, which I watched that one years ago, but I don't remember much about it. I need to go back to that one. He did The Vanishing on 7th Street, which I just saw a preview for on some movie that I popped in and watched recently. It's got John Leguizamo and what's his name? Christian Star Wars prequels. Hayden Christensen. Christensen. Yeah. Hayden Christensen. Wow. Haven't heard that name in a while. Now that's a name I've not heard in a long time. Long time. Yeah, and then he also did The Call a couple of years ago with Halle Berry, where she's like a 911 operator. And he's done some TV stuff, too, since then. I remember looking at his uh, filmography on Wikipedia, and he had, he just loves living in, like, the psychological thriller, psychological horror. Yeah. That seems to be his jam. Yeah, totally. The movie is stacked with seasoned character actors. It's very guy-heavy, which we'll talk about, and that's definitely a theme of the movie. But everybody in this movie is one of those, like, that guy character actors. So, great cast. Once again, this movie was kind of on the cutting edge of digital cinematography. Mm-hmm. This movie was shot in 2000. Uta Bracewitz was the cinematographer, and she did stuff like The Wire and Walk Hard and a lot of Hung. Uh, but she's actually switched to mostly directing since 2015, and she's done pretty much every big-budget TV show you can think of since 2015. Like, she's done Stranger Things. She did episodes of The Deuce. She's been involved in a good bit. But the movie itself, they use these newer Sony cameras that shot in 24 frames per second instead of the traditional, like, 30 that most digital video did. So it has a different look to it. But I think it works really, really well for, like, this type of movie. It's not found footage, but it has that found footage kind of dirty, grainy. You're kind of watching something you shouldn't be like snuff film kind of quality at times but you have like this really impressive range and versatility and how they can like utilize different focal depths and like how they can light certain scenes because they're shooting digitally so it definitely like gives the entire movie a specific look but I think it aged well like going back and looking at something like 28 Days Later for instance that was also shot on digital DV video at the time that movie looks like bullshit now like it's tough to (laughs) watch 28 days it totally does yeah it totally does especially trying to watch it in high def on a new tv 28 days later looks awful now but this movie like aged really really well with the tech that they used at the time um and again that was cutting edge like they also did a 35 millimeter transfer from the digital for cinemas and to give you an idea this was when like the star wars prequels to go back around to that this is when like they were really starting to experiment with that while they were filming episode two attack of the clones and that was like the first movie to be fully shot in digital completely top to bottom not just like key scenes and that was like only the second or third movie to do a full like digital 235 transfer so this movie was really on the breaking edge of that at the time anderson also kind of claims that the film was heavily inspired by a real life case a guy named richard rosenthal i didn't know about this yeah so this guy apparently murdered his wife 
sometime in the mid-90s. She, like, burned the baked ZD. He murdered her, murdered the kids, and just kind of went on with his life um, and just kind of ignored it and blocked it out and, you know, eventually was caught and everything else. He also claims that Nicholas Rogues Don't Look Now, which that movie is classic. We'll get around to that one eventually, too. Um, he said that movie also kind of has an influence because of its sense of place as well and kind of the way that the lead character eventually realizes at the end of the movie that they've been at the heart of this mystery the entire time. Something else, too, like going back to what you are saying about it aging well. Granted, I can tell it was made, you know, a chunk of years ago, but it still looks like a modern film. Like, if you would have shown me this and I wasn't going into it already with the knowledge that it came out in 2001 and was shot in 2000, I would have guessed that maybe this was made in, like, 08 or 09. Yeah. The only thing that really dates it is the clothing and haircuts that the guys wear, but it's also stuff that's, like, still innocuous enough that, yeah, like, you wouldn't necessarily know for sure when it was taking place because the movie is all set at the hospital. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's kind of the main thing that settled, that centers it. Yeah, even the music at all, there's no difference between yeah. sort of a, the time period. Totally. Well, this kind of forgives in my mind a little bit because I know, like, we, and granted, we haven't really dug into it too, too much. Kind of that 2000s, 2000 to 2010 chunk of time with horror movies. And I know Ma- Mothman Prophecies didn't really help me with my opinion <laughs> on that time period. Whereas this movie, I feel like is like, this is what I was looking for. And it's kind of interesting that you brought up sort of like that found footage kind of aesthetic to it. And I think it definitely helps it because it is polished enough to where it's like a cinematic movie. It's not fully found footage, but the fact that it's not overproduced like Mothman Prophecies is, yeah, I think really helps this movie. Yeah, totally. And this movie's kind of coming on the heels of like that late 90s, you know, new line, lots of young pretty people in a movie, lots of slasher stuff again. It's kind of coming after that when you know the early 2000s between that phase and between you're the saying beginning. david caruso isn't a pretty face <laughs> <laughs> hank is beautiful aaron yeah, yeah yeah or or the guy with the mullet was that hank i can't jeff, remember that was jeff yeah. poor sweet yeah. jeff. jeff jeff what a what a mullet wonderful jeff this movie was kind of in that interesting phase between that late 90s period of pretty teen slasher movies and what we now kind of call the torture porn era that happened around 2003 2004 like that three or four years was really interesting because people were trying a bunch of new different things to kind of see what worked and so there are some interesting movies that popped up around this time you know again some like mothman that don't age well but things like this that actually do so anyway yeah kind of circling back around they shot the whole film on location at danvers which was abandoned by that point in time it shut down in 92 and they like partially demolished it and turned it into condos in like 2012. They are begging for that to be haunted. Totally, what totally. What is wrong with them? The actual hospital itself sits on Hawthorne Hill, which was named after Judge John Hawthorne, who was a fucking judge during the Salem Witch Trials. So that was all happening like right around here because Danvers is like essentially the old village of Salem. So it's fucking triple quadruple haunted from all that <laughs> happening as well too. Again, like the place kind of they went and it is almost as is. You know, they brought in a few props, but most of the things that we see in the movie, most of like the picture collages and the like furniture and the stuff is all stuff that was there. That's so crazy because picture in your mind what you think an abandoned mental health facility would look like and that it's maybe haunted and that's exactly what this hospital looks like interior and out 
rust and the walls flaking to pieces and things just covered with graffiti. Yeah, wet, just like drips everywhere. And all the equipment, like all the abandoned equipment. Yeah. Looks like fucking medieval torture. Yeah, most of that was still there. Some was brought in, but most of that was there. And the crazy thing is, like the complex, we see it from the outside of the movie. We only really see them use a tiny portion during the course of the movie. And it's because that's the only place that was really safe for them to film. Kind of going back to Lauren's earlier point, you don't want to fall through a fucking floor, right? So most of the place was just so unsafe that they didn't film. And it's just a small area, which is kind of hilarious because the whole plot hinges on, we got to clean the asbestos out of this entire place in a week. But we really only see them working on like three rooms (laughs) ever. (laughs) But yeah, you know, the place has such kind of a weird feel and quality to it. And both David Caruso and... Peter Mullen, like, both say that, like, they had weird happenings while they were shooting there, like, just weird little instances of things. Listening to an interview with the director, Brad Anderson, he was talking about how uh, the cinematographer, Uta Bracewitz, like, almost blinded herself in the scene that they were filming, like, in the tunnels, where she's running around in these dark tunnels with the camera, following one of the characters, and she ran right into, like, this pipe thing that was just hanging, and fell down, like, dropped the camera just everything went everywhere and she literally had like a piece of like some kind of pipe go into the side of her eye and there was blood everywhere and they were like freaking out because they thought she had like gouged her eye out and weirdly enough it's very similar like where it went in the side of your eyeball is very similar to like lobotomies and how that works which we'll get to and you know they brought her to the hospital everything was fine she just ended up with a black eye and they were like yeah worst case scenario you'll just have a black eye and wear some sunglasses which again weird ironic shit for like where this movie goes speaking of synchronicities like I brought up with Hellier earlier yeah so it's interesting you know from all those standpoints too that like this movie has such a sense of place that exudes itself, you know, onto the screen in a way that's like so so interesting that few movies kind of get a hold of. You know, so that's that's kind of the backstory there. There's a little bit more backstory that I want to talk about like once we get to it within the plot, but I you know, I guess from there, you know, we can go ahead and get into the plot if you want to. So, Derek, I'll uh, let you take the lead on that. So, before we uh before we dig into it, you know, if you want to remain spoiler free, this is the part where I would I'll tell you like how scary it is and like all that so it's very heavily psychological very heavily like dread building upon dread it is a heavy movie much heavier than i was even expecting it when uh i was going into it it deals with some pretty intense themes you know murder within a family and insanity to the point of lobotomy and all of that and while this does have mental health in it again this feels like another one of those movies where it's in the context of the movie it doesn't feel like it's negative towards the overall viewpoint of mental health I feel like I think it's just more if anything it shows what happens when you leave it behind like this like you know this decrepit abandoned building and instead of correcting our mistakes from like lobotomies and all these other barbaric forms of treatment they just left it behind instead of approving upon it and making it better safer thing for patients. Yeah. I mean, I would even go so far to say like theme of the movie, you know, if you kind of let things like that fall apart, they become this haunted shell 
of a thing, yes. much like a lot of the men in this movie who choose to like bottle up and ignore their feelings and not deal with their mental illnesses and how that ultimately comes back around to like bite them in the ass and like haunt them and haunt the people around them, dot, dot, dot. But again, like well, all within the context of this movie, because it's not like, I know we talked a lot of crap about like with Joker and other movies and their portrayal of mental illness in the past. The, in the context of this film, it doesn't feel like it's being insulting towards mental illness and it doesn't feel like it's making out to be dangerous. It just, it feels like you're trapped in the ghost of what used to be good intentions yeah. turned sour and turned left behind. And when you, like you were saying, when you leave it behind, good intentions pave the road to hell. Like this is what happens and this is why we can't abandon these kind of institutions and people behind. So yeah, it's scary, but I think honestly, this is a great movie to start off with if you're trying to dip your toes into horror. It is a legitimately scary movie and it deals with a lot of horrifying themes, but without having to rely on jump scares and this is like a straight up horror movie. Like if you go into a horror movie conversation and say, yeah, one of my favorite horror movies is Session 9, that's a very... That's respectable. Yeah. That's a respectable thing when it comes to the horror related in this film. So I would recommend this one actually to uh, all you horror beginners that want to dip your toes. It's a little intense. It'll stay with you. It'll creep under your skin, but it won't outright jump scare horrify you, I guess. So that's my two cents on that. Uh, did y'all have anything to add to that before we uh, we go scene by scene? So thinking of it in terms of being introduction to horror, in trying to remember when I first saw this movie, it's one of those weird like getting older trick of memory kind of things where I went through a period with my friends in high school uh, where we really wanted to watch horror movies. That was, you know, the fun thing to do, but we couldn't rent R-rated movies. And yeah. so we went through this phase of watching like Signs, The Others, kind of et The PG-13 horrors, yeah. The PG-13 horrors. And I swear this was one of them. I have been telling stories about this movie for years about it being PG-13 in the context of David Caruso's immortal line, which we will get to. It's so strange to me that it is rated R. And in fact, it would be incredibly graphically violent for a PG-13 movie. Not by horror standards, but just for PG-13. Yeah. But I do think going back to the portrayal of mental illness, I think what this movie does very well is in these small moments where there are small moments where characters would say, describe a procedure or mention a procedure and say that's horrifying and they don't treat it lightly. They don't treat it as this yeah. sort of joke or they even go to what people were diagnosed with. Um, like, I think one is, uh, like, frustrated expectations. But there's even this moment where one character says, I can't do this thing because I have this disorder. And the other character, who for the rest of the movie has been giving him just shit constantly, just goes, okay, I'll go do it. Yeah. And treats it with the degree of respect that it deserves. So I fully agree that it, it's a pretty good portrayal of mental illness and it's a great introductory horror movie yeah you'll definitely be able to sleep afterward i think you can watch it get the thrill get the creeps but you should be able to sleep just fine yeah <laughs> should be that's the key wording there <laughs> that's my threshold is can i sleep or can i not sleep yep so with that all being said like i said if you want to watch this then pause right here go watch it and come back so here we are and we've talked a little bit about it this being a asbestos removal company in Massachusetts and they get hired on to do this job and it is fronted by a gentleman known as Gordon Fleming who is played by Peter Mullen which Peter Mullen he has been around for years and years he was in stuff like Danny Boyle's Shallow Grave and Train Spotting um, he was actually like in Braveheart because he's Scottish of course he has a small role of, in Children of Men that's really interesting um, he's one of the Death Eaters in Deathly Hallows Part 1 
one. He was in Westworld. He was in Ozark. He was in Top of the Lake. Um, so he's been in a lot of TV lately. He's in a movie called Tyrannosaur where he is a fucking maniac. So yeah, he. I thought you were going to say he was a Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that would have actually been pretty cool to see a Tyrannosaurus Rex stomping around like with a Scottish accent, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so Gordon Fleming is the owner of this uh, asbestos removal, like kind of industrial construction cleanup company. It's kind of shown through these opening scenes that he is making a desperate bid to remove the asbestos from the abandoned Danvers state mental hospital it showed that like this company seems like it's on its last legs he's in a lot of financial trouble this is kind of guaranteed money uh he wants to get it done quick but efficiently but it's also inferred that this is a big project like this is a maybe even a little bit of a dangerous project just with the how decrepit the old building is so he goes to survey the job site with his partner phil our boy david caruso <laughs> David Caruso himself, which I mean, CSI Miami. Do we even need to say anything else there? What else? Yeah. Has he well, done? this was this was before he was on CSI, so this is like pre self parody David Caruso. But fun connection all the way back around to our night of the comet episode. He was on Ryan's Hope, which is the same soap that Kelly Maroney was on at the time. He was in Without Warning. Uh, he was in First Blood, uh, Hill Street Blues, King of New. York, Jade, um, and then of course CSI Miami as well. And then the building manager guy, Bill Griggs, that they go to meet with, also played by a CSI alum. Um, that's Paul Gilfoyle. He was in like Howard the Duck, Three Men and a Baby, Wall Street, Serpent in the Rainbow, Mrs. Doubtfire, Quiz Show, LA Confidential, which I just rewatched that recently, and he's in the beginning of that. Amistad, Spotlight, but then yeah, he was he's like the main police chief guy in the original CSI show. Yeah. And David Caruso, fun fact, which I didn't know about this because I assumed he was still acting and CSI Miami was still going on, but it was canceled actually back in 2012 after about 10 seasons. And ever since then, David Caruso actually has retired from acting. And apparently, according to his Wikipedia article, he's involved in the art business now. Yeah. Good for him, I guess. Yeah, good for him. After Session 9, the only other movie he did, which also came out in 2001, was Black Point. But Session 9 was the second to last movie Dave Caruso ever did. And uh, he did CSI Miami. Last acting gig was CSI Miami 2012. And he appeared in all 232 episodes of it. Jeez, um. Yes. Well, too, I guess you can retire off that syndication money. So, you know. Oh, absolutely. Good good on him. And for, for those who might be younger and listening to this and really don't understand like why we're laughing so much about all this just go online uh and youtube csi miami cold open like supercut or something yeah. like that and <laughs> you'll see what we're talking about yeah i will say does he ever wear sunglasses in this movie i don't think so <laughs> does he ever put on sunglasses dramatically <laughs> i guess is the better question <laughs> they are indoors so it would be a bit off-putting uh, and uh, unfortunately the who are not on the soundtrack either <laughs> so uh going back to that he goes to survey the job site with phil and like you had mentioned, uh, the building manager is Bill Griggs. And while they're there, and Gordon already at the get-go, the way Peter Mullins plays him, you can just feel that he's under a lot of stress. Like, But he's one of those types that's trying to like be professional and remain professional the whole way. But even then, you can still catch little glimpses of that he's under a lot of stress here. Yeah. And when they arrive, he actually hears right off the bat, which I was kind of surprised how quickly this jumped into kind of like a little bit of horror in it. He hears a disembodied voice that actually greets 
greets him by name and Gordon just straight up ignores it. Like he's like, a, you know, all in my head, whatever. He talks about having a new baby and that they really need the money. He's desperate for it. And that's when they come to the conclusion, like Phil was saying, like, we can't get this done for three weeks. And Gordon was like, no, we need to get this done in one week. And then they agreed to, to there's a, not an animosity, but they definitely butt heads a little bit throughout this movie, Phil and Gordon, but they agree to the two weeks. And then the scene cuts over and we see Gordon sitting in his truck and he's across the street from his house. And we go back to the shot a few times through the movie and he basically is looking longingly at his wife and child outside the house. The way this film, is, the this scene is shot, it's almost even like a little bit blurry, like something is really off here. The way this is set up is that you see the front of the house and the front door is open. And as we keep going back to the scene, like you can actually see inside the front door and the way this house is built is straight through the front door you see into the kitchen. Yeah. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because it comes back later in the movie, but throughout the scenes, you always see this pot that's on the stove and it's boiling. And you could tell something's kind of off with the scene too, because the way that the editing kind of just cuts non sequitur to that scene is a little bit odd. Also, this is the early 2000s. And again, just like CSI, everything was all about some fucking color filters to kind of set like where you are, right? And yeah, dog. this scene where you see him like in his truck looking at his wife and child across the street, it's all blue. It just has like a blue filter to it. So like it's definitely like in a different time and place and you're kind of like seeing this scene out of context. But we don't quite realize that it's not like a one for one just later in the evening kind of thing just yet. But it's definitely there's something off about it. Oh, so and it is, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, Aaron, that it is an overwhelmingly male cast and a male movie. Yes. Uh, his wife and the other female character, which is Mary, which we'll get to later on, they're almost always seen either as just an image or just a voice. And so with this, where the wife almost isn't even a character, where she's more of just a presence, where you see her holding the baby and then you hear her voice and you don't see the two at the same time. Yeah. So it is the few female presences in this movie really are just a presence sort of in the background on these men's lives in a major way. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing too with the scene, because you were saying that like it might be like later on in the evening or something, but because of the filtering and the way it's shot and everything is it almost feels like it's timeless like this could have either happened like before he went off to survey the building yeah this could have happened the first day that they're supposed to start work like in the morning you're definitely not sure the time and place of what you're looking at just yet and it could even be as like they just got in a fight and like he's about to go somewhere to like leave for a little bit and yeah so it's very interesting and and like i said they go back to the scene a few times and it always is like this the next morning next day they start the work basically and we are introduced to these other great all-star members of this asbestos cleaning team. We have Hank, who is played by Josh Lucas. Sweet Home Alabama. Yep, he was in Sweet Home Alabama. He kind of got his start in the early 90s with stuff like Alive, and um, he was also in Stephen King's Thinner, um, and then he was in American Psycho, but lots of, like, mid-2000s junk from there, like A Beautiful Mind and Ang Lee Hulk, uh, Stealth, Poseidon, just stuff like that, so... And he's still doing work. Um, I didn't really see anything like highly notable at the time. But yeah, Josh Lucas is one of those guys that they tried real, real hard in the mid 2000s to push him 
as a leading man and just something didn't quite stick. And I think a lot of it's just he kind of has that Brad Pitt thing where he is a character actor in a leading man's body. And so he kind of has been given a lot of the wrong roles over the years. But when he finds stuff that he's good in, he's good like this movie. And Hank is a little bit of an asshole in this movie. Yeah. I mean, they all they all have their problems and we'll we'll touch on that later on, like what each of them kind of suffers from, quote unquote. He's the like most brash and loud and like just yeah. asshole of the bunch. Yeah. Yeah. He's like trying to be the alpha male yeah. when he's not really that alpha. He basically right off the bat is starting to prod Phil, leading us to assume that he is now in the relationship with the woman Phil used to be with. And he like, I don't know if it was in this scene or maybe a little bit later on, but he makes a joke about he's really almost only in this relationship just because he knows it pisses off Phil that he's sleeping with his ex, basically. Totally. Totally, mm-hmm. yeah. And then the other person is our poor buddy, Jeff. Gordon's mullethead nephew. On his first job, Jeff is played by Brendan Saxton III. Oh. I don't know much about this guy. Like, I recognize almost everyone else. He's been in a good bit of stuff. Yeah, that sounds familiar. He's in uh, Welcome to the Dollhouse. Um, he was in Empire Records, Boys Don't Cry, Black Hawk Down, which you don't recognize anybody in Black Hawk Down because it's just a bunch of dudes with shaved heads. So it's wild going back and watching that movie. Like, I know it's off topic, but like going back and watching that movie and seeing everybody in that movie is somebody now, it's kind of wild. Um, he was recently in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. He was on the TV show Russian Doll on Netflix, which was big last year. Um, and then he was also in El Camino, which is like the Breaking Bad movie on Netflix that just came out this fall, which I still haven't actually watched yet. Yeah, and he obviously shows kind of his inexperience in his youth because he's immediately like chastised by both Mike and Hank for blasting like metal on his boombox and they're saying like, hey, asshole, you're going to shake all the particulate into the air, like make all the asbestos get everywhere. Yeah, I can't remember what the term was, but Josh Lucas called it something, but it was the vibrations and sound waves from the heavy music literally would just like shake asbestos dust all around them. (laughs) They're just going to be breathing all that shit in. He goes on like a little bit of a tangent telling Jeff like, hey, this is what happens to your body when you get a asbestos in your lungs. Yeah. Stop. Just to scare him, yeah. Mike, the other guy that kind of fusses at him, is played by Steven Jevedon, and he was the co-writer of this movie. He was also in Oz back in the day. He was on NYPD Blue with David Caruso, so that's maybe a little bit of a crossover there. Like, there are different, there are little connections here and there where you can maybe see how some people have worked together over the years on different movies, and maybe they suggested or recommended other people or, like, said, hey, come audition for this. He was also in The Deuce, uh, which was on uh, HBO the past couple of years, which is great if you're interested in, like, New York, 42nd Street, during the 70s, all about the porn industry. Um, Super, super interesting show. But, yeah, he co-wrote this movie, Session 9, as well. And he actually recently played a, not a major, major character, but he has a lot of speaking lines, uh, a character in Red Dead Redemption 2. Uh, He plays Josiah, uh, and Josiah's a member of the gang in Red Dead Redemption 2. Okay, cool. Yeah, he's he's kind of getting he's still he's still doing random odd jobs like I'm on his IMDB page right now. So he's he's doing a lot of stuff. So going back as they're kind of talking about this job, Mike is recalling to the team that all these institutions were kind of closed due to budget cuts in the 80s, specifically under Reagan. The fad of regressive memory therapy, um, which caused a lot of legal it troubles for people, including like accusations and lawsuits and Mike's father is the state AG, but he dropped out of law school 
himself and he was talking about like he kind of acts like he has still enough of the the law knowledge to discuss on this topic as to why this is such a issue and regressive memory therapy is brought up uh, later on in this movie it's a big part of everything like revealing the different personalities but I'm jumping a little bit ahead well let's pause right here too because this is kind of where I wanted to drop in a little bit more backstory as well so kind of like they mentioned Reagan's budget cuts in the 80s like completely destroyed this part of the healthcare industry and so there were tons and tons of asylums and mental institutions and hospitals and places around the country that just pretty much over fucking night had to shut down because they just didn't have any funding anymore and private funding either didn't work out or private funding dried up or whatever so what ended up happening is throughout the 80s you had tons and tons and tons of patients just get turned out onto the streets and most of them ended up homeless a lot of them ended up dying a lot of them ended up in like other facilities or like back with family again but it it led to this massive massive exodus of all these patients just back into the general American society again and so it caused tons and tons of issues going forward but one thing that they mentioned in the movie too is patients returning and how they had like a weird rash of people who just didn't know what to do or didn't know where to go afterward that would just kind of find their way back to the hospitals and then like go live back in the hospitals again um, and just kind of squat you know and you would hear all these stories about kids going to explore these kind of places and just running into people that used to be patients there that are still living there and you know having creepy weird kind of run-ins with people there is a very interesting documentary called Cropsy which is about the like Staten Island hospital shutting down and how the woods and that entire like stretch around the hospital have been just kind of like haunted in this weird way by this mental institution and how there was this whole boogeyman story that started in the 70s where you know kids would tell each other like yeah if you're gonna be bad or you go out at night like Cropsy's gonna get you and just kind of having this boogeyman character but it was all kind of wrapped around this asylum shutting down coincidentally around the same time that like there were some child disappearances so it all kind of got rolled up into this one big thing um, but the documentary is interesting because it goes in depth about the Reagan budget cuts and it also talks about how like Geraldo Rivera had this giant expose story that was a big deal where he literally goes into one of these underfunded uh, hospitals and filmed the conditions there where it's literally just people like living in filth yeah. and they are either like naked or in just dirty underwear and underclothes and they are all just huddled together in the dark with nothing to eat. The staff, it's like maybe like one or two staff people for like every like 40, 50 patients. Massive, massive insane how did we like as a society let this happen kind of thing. And that was a giant controversy at the time as well. But, you know, kind of looping back around to, like, some of the more controversial methods that happened. Uh, Mike mentions the Patricia Ward scandal. And that's, like, the reason why this hospital got uh, shut down. Which, that's not a real thing. But the story that he tells is kind of heavily inspired by the Emerald family. Very, like, similar situation where the daughter that was committed basically went through this aggressive memory therapy thing to like try to figure out the root of like what her you know situation is and she suddenly had all these revelations of how she was satanic ritual sexual abuse when she was growing up and all of it ended up being like 
planted and it was all kind of suggestion and things that she like kind of made up that ended up being debunked later. Um, there was a book by Dorothy Rabinowitz called No Crueler Tyrannies, Accusations, False Witness, and Other Terrors of Our Times, um, which won a Pulitzer, but it was all about how like so much of that regressive memory therapy bullshit basically caused tons and tons of issues where people got accused of abuse and neglect and all these things that, you know, supposedly happened in these people's childhoods that like actually didn't. And it tore families apart and it caused lots of different lawsuits and things like that. So that's what Mike is kind of talking about. And that has a lot of root in reality and actual history and things that went on there. But yeah, it's like a side thing. Definitely check out Cropsy. Um, I think it's just free on YouTube, but it's it's on a lot of different streaming services. And um, it's, it's very interesting for sure. Well, and uh, anytime I've heard or learned about or listened to a podcast about Satanic Panic in the 80s, it oftentimes did go hand in hand with the Reagan budget cuts and mental health institutions shutting down. And I mean, totally. even shit like Always Sunny in Philadelphia, like the episode uh, where uh, Psycho Pete returns. Yeah. Even that deals with the theme of like, oh, they had to shut down the mental facility all of a sudden. So all these people got let out with nowhere to go, basically. Yeah. Like it's such a common theme. It's basically a trope unto itself now. Um, and so many things of fiction of people returning to an abandoned insane asylum because they have nowhere else to go or or just how much of a trope it is in movies group of teens goes to explore xyz place and then somebody is still there oh no right well and it's very much hand in hand with this movie because i i really do like that they chose to shoot danvers state hospital as is yeah you like you said very few other props were brought in especially like when they're doing survey scenes and just throughout the movie as they're walking through these couple rooms they were actually able to shoot in you are seeing like the old tubs that they used to do ice baths in and all the uh, lobotomy equipment and all not lobotomy no yeah they did lobotomies yeah yeah. lobotomies and and everything else and it straight up looks like 1940s 1950s let's experiment in Roswell sort of setups here also seeing the patients rooms and just seeing like how they like certain people had made these collages of photographs and just newspaper clippings and things like that and how that was like part of their therapy essentially weird insight into me but like I was really into doing that in high school and I made these massive massive collages that I would put on every surface of my room essentially like I had them in like the panels on the doors and the entire underside of the bunk bed that my brother and I shared like I had this massive collage stretching the entire underside of that that was kind of the same thing but just seeing that this is something that belonged to a real person in real life now in this movie is super haunting absolutely so we are then shown that Mike is trying to teach Jeff how to use the cleaning equipment and they're all using like one giant circuit breaker and like they're attached to all these cords to power outlet that they brought with them and all the extension cords are all wrapped up and like connected to each other and suddenly it turns off something's tripped one of the cords is either ripped out or or got tripped or whatever so Jeff claims that he has a massive fear of the dark because Mike is asking Jeff like hey can you go check that out yeah it's called nyctophobia nyctophobia yeah Jeff refuses saying like no it's nice and light up here I have a fear of the dark Mike's like okay no problem or whatever I'll go do take care of it Mike's goes downstairs and while he's downstairs he finds a sealed box of reel-to-reel audio recordings this is a little bit of a spoiler for like kind of what's coming up it's never fully implied there's any supernatural presence at all going on that's influencing them like you can go one way or the other you can go one way that like this is all in their heads or you can go like no or there's something kind of influencing things here and this is kind of one of the 
besides the disembodied voice that Gordon heard earlier, this is kind of another one of those instances where it either could be just a coincidence or it could be like a ghost. Yeah. Because there's something like the light turns itself on or, or there's something in this part that like leads Mike's eyes to wander to this sealed box of reel-to-reel video or audio recordings that he otherwise would have just ignored. Uh, so he finds these recordings and they are sessions of Mary Hobbs, a patient who was suffering from dissociative identity disorder. And he decides that later on this evening, and this is this is one of those instances where I was like, oh shit, is Mike about to be possessed or something? That's where I thought the movie was going for a second because he sneaks into the asylum in the evening to listen to them, to just listen to them, which think about that for a second. He's choosing to go back to not only abandon a sane asylum at night, but also they're cleaning it for asbestos. Yeah. So there's asbestos everywhere and he wants to listen to fucking old audio recordings of a patient who can switch her adult voice to her child's voice based on which personality whether it's quote unquote Billy or quote unquote Simon talking or the princess the princesses or the princess the first, yeah, yeah the princess yeah yeah that's fucking creepy there is a lot of coming back to the asylum after dark which you would not think anyone would ever be on board for but multiple characters just sort of sojourn back to the asylum at night yeah and you were talking about uh lauren earlier about how really the only two female characters are more of a presence rather than characters and this is where we are first really introduced to the voice of mary or voices of mary yeah which she's the most dominant female presence in the movie for sure and again it's literally just a recording mm-hmm. yeah and it's one of those things where like the different voices and changes depending on what personality is coming through it could totally be like multiple people or it could totally be the same actress just doing different voices but like they are so different and the changes from them are so abrupt that it's very unsettling like this is to me some of the scariest parts of this movie are just listening to these recordings And it is very interesting that you are right, that she is sort of the uh, more dominating female presence in the movie. And it is just so interesting to me that they never show an image of her and a voice at the same time, if I can recall correctly. Like, you do see pictures of her, and she does look very, very angry and very intense. But it's never really the case that you would see a person talking. And I mean, granted, that's not sort of the format that her testimony is being shown in. Yeah. And I'm glad that, like, the movie doesn't, like, flash back or anything like that. 
that either just like yeah. keeps it with the voice and you see some pictures like you were saying yes it, yeah. it really does make it more of a presence than even a character it does it's not hard to follow either but it is very much like show don't tell because there's also parts where like mike is flipping through her case files and starts reading through them and that's when you see like pictures of her and like you'll see before and after pictures of her like when she was a little girl and before this unspeakable tragedy that apparently happened to her happens so that also feeds more into the the idea of a presence rather than a character and something else that's going on through this movie is it's showing like monday tuesday wednesday like at the start of a new day letting you know like where they are in the week because in gordon's mind they need to be done by the over the weekend because he wants to get it done in one week and even though he agreed to two it's kind of implied that he's like nah fuck that i'm still gonna want it done in one so on tuesday hank finds a liberty silver dollar in the ground as he's cleaning like this kind of hallway area he sees that there's some loose areas in the bricks in a nearby wall and he decides to start pulling out the bricks out and finds a bunch of like silver dollars pour out of the wall i think there's even like a little bit of jewelry mixed in there this was kind of also creepy because the camera pulls back because like he he kind of looks behind his shoulder because he's obviously like kind of trying to keep this to himself because he stuffs everything back into the wall puts the bricks back up and then the camera pans out from inside the wall like where the stuff was all is and you find that it was the inside of the incinerator incinerator for the crematorium yeah that was fucking good shot on their part so during their lunch break jeff is poking fun at mike for uh dropping out of law school This scene was pretty intense because then Mike just straight up fucking headlocks Jeff and describes how lobotomies were performed with the chopstick that he's using. Yeah, they're like eating like Chinese takeout. He just yeah. takes one of the chopsticks. It's like, imagine this in a headlock, putting that shit up by his eye. Yeah. And he talks about too, like during this, like after he, like they would do the lobotomy into the eye, how like the patients would wear sunglasses to like cover up the black eye and all the swelling around it. Yeah. That would, would come up. After that, Hank lectures Jeff about needing an exit strategy strategies is not to like get stuck in the stressful line of work with asbestos cleaning while that's going on gordon goes to try and call his wife and when he does that he spots phil outside in the courtyard through a window and phil is obviously doing something with some shady guys he it's obviously an exchange probably a drug deal handing him money and like them giving him something and earlier on in the movie too gordon like one of gordon's pet peeves is he does not want the people that work under him to be um on drugs of any kind so that that kind of also feeds into kind of a significant like people are going behind his back and undermining like what he wants of them and what he's expecting of them. Uh, It is interesting in this moment where he calls his wife it's one of I think two or three times where that happens and you always just see his side of it so you see him talking into the phone and you never hear how his wife responds. Yes yeah and actually that happens not only to him but it also happens later on with I think it was with Phil and we'll get to that but anyway probably what is the dumbest idea in my mind of any of what the characters do in this movie. Hank decides he's gonna sneak back in at night like dead of night, pitch black with just like a flashlight and he goes back to the tunnel to the area where he found the coins and so he goes and he digs into the wall and he finds like all these coins, eyeglasses, rings, watches, even teeth with gold on them and silver fillings and all of this and he also actually finds a lobotomy pick among them too. He is like gathering up in a, in a satchel and he's startled by a noise and he thinks it's 
puts his mind playing his tricks on him and he's kind of walking down the hallway to leave and he gets spooked when he because he keeps looking back over his shoulder and finally he sees a shadowy outline like of someone in the building like kind of behind him and this was maybe like a little bit of the jump scare of, uh, of the few that are in this this was the creepiest shit to me for sure because mm-hmm. yeah he's like in a hallway and like the hallway is like it used to be where the doctors and and staff and the patients would go and it's separated by a chain link fence in the middle of these two hallways i couldn't remember but i think he goes down the patient hallway to leave mm-hmm. um which i which i took note of as soon as he sees this person he starts basically jogging running oh like being like all right time to fucking go yeah and the way this movie is shot is like yeah it is in the pitch blackness other than what you can see from his flashlight and there are a couple instances where the camera shows what he can see and you can only see like two feet in front of him and this was where i was fully expecting like a major jump scare to happen like something jump out while the camera is showing his pov as he kind of is running and he's hearing these weird noises he rounds the corner and is startled by someone and actually the camera switches to the pov of whatever he sees and the camera kind of rushes up to him and then it cuts to black so there is one thing that at first was really funny to me about the scene is when hank goes back for his you know coin heist out of the wall he's listening to like smooth jazz on his headphones (laughs) and it's the weirdest like okay the weirdest music for him to choose but then what's so interesting is they don't cut off the music so once he's startled i think he pulls his headphones off and it's still playing for at least part of the scene so it's this like weird echoey smooth jazz playing under sounds of him like sprinting and panting and panicking and it's actually very very effective at making the scene that much creepier yeah it's also pretty interesting to go back and see what is it like it's not a walkman but it was like a tape player or something it was a cd player and he had it was like a cd walkman yeah it was a walkman okay it was like bright yellow and yeah because i think i owned that exact pair of headphones and maybe that walkman we cut to Wednesday. Hank no-shows for the job. So they're all kind of like, Gordon's getting more pissed and Phil's like, all right, you know, like, we'll figure this out. Let's try and, we'll, we'll, we can get this. I'll call my ex, see what happened with Hank, where he is. And so he calls his ex and granted, this is this is the scene I was mentioning earlier, Lauren, uh, where we only see it from Phil's point of view. We don't hear you the other. You never hear end. anything that she's saying, if she's, she's even saying, on the yeah. phone. Yeah. But he's saying that basically Hank apparently broke up with her in the middle of the night and just bailed to Miami. CSI Miami. Um, but but yeah, apparently he just straight up took his coins or whatever he found and fucking bailed. He was going to like what bartending school or like casino dealing, like dealer school or whatever. That was it, like dealing, something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, it was something weird like that. Yeah, it was something where like knowing that character, the little bit that you've seen of him, like you could totally buy that he did do that. Even though we just saw like the weirdness of him like at the place the night before, it still seems like something very plausible that like he would do. Yeah. Also, too, on that note, I don't think he could be a bartender. I picture him way more of, like, he's the dealer at a casino or, like, a roadside motel casino of some kind. Like, that's what I picture him in. The fact that he's going to Florida to do that doesn't surprise me at all. No offense, Lauren. Oh, thanks. Being in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it does make sense as a cover story for him, too, because you could conceive of him going, well, I'm leaving you, baby. I'm going to casino school in, you know, Miami, and then leaving thinking he's going to get these coins and trade them in and get all this money and then like retire on a beach somewhere so it it does like you're saying it does make sense for 
with a character. Yeah. When all this happens, Gordon is now kind of becoming a little more stressed out and unhinged. He's kind of buckling a little bit more from the stress of this job and things going wrong and fatherhood. Phil's also kind of prodding him about like, yo, you know, I don't like Hank. Fuck Hank. We never should have hired Hank. Why don't you let me like scoop two or three of the guys from this other crew that was competing for the bid with us because I can get them down here in a heartbeat and blah, blah, blah. So he's he's definitely kind of putting that bug in Gordon's ear already. Yeah. And Phil isn't straight up, at least not at this point, he isn't straight up getting in conflict with him, but he's definitely kind of questioning his judgment. Yeah. And Phil and Gordon kind of step aside and Gordon says, hey, look, I need to confess something to you. And he tells him that he's currently separated from his wife after he slapped her. It, he says that like it was just one of those things where he's been under a lot of stress. They've been not sleeping well because of the baby, uh, stress from the job. His wife did something during dinner and he just hit her and it was all just kind of emotionally charged. And that is where it goes back to the setup of like what we were looking at earlier when he's in his truck and his wife is looking at him through the, the doorway of the of the house. And it also appears that he's living out of the work van since yeah. they've been separated. Also too, isn't he, isn't this where he says that like she accidentally burned him with pasta? Yes. It was the water. Yeah. She like maybe yeah. knocked the pot of water over or something like that and it burned him and it burned him on his leg because we see him like treating that in a little bit. Yeah. And he's, he's limping a little bit too and he's kind of always trying to hide it. And yeah, and that, that goes back to the image of the boiling pot on the stove that you see through the doorway when he's leaving. On Thursday, we see Phil straight up hitting a joint in his car because fuck Gordon, fuck the man. I'm going to get high on this job. <laughs> I'll say this too, the moment where he like meets with the two guys kind of in the courtyard and Gordon sees him down in the courtyard and is like, who are these two guys? What's going on? Gordon maybe thinks that he's chatting with a different worker crew or something. Like he doesn't know what's going on, but he's definitely suspicious. And David Caruso like waves it off. as like, oh yeah, it's just some of those punks that did this graffiti. And I, you know, I told him to fuck off and not come around here anymore. And lots of people have kind of questioned like, who were those two guys? and some of the reviews that I've read. And I think it's pretty clear cut that they're just his fucking dealers. And he was just, you know, grabbing some weed off of them. And then, you know, clearly we see him like hitting a joint in his car here. So I think it's kind of cut and dry. And there's not really a whole lot of mystery there. Like a lot of people seem to think there is. Yeah. yeah. When we watched this movie together, like I never second guessed that they were just his dealers. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. it looked like a drug deal, like a pot deal going on. So I don't know like why there's any kind of question to who they are. Yeah. Phil pulls Mike aside and Gordon kind of overhears this conversation they have. He tells Mike that he's decided to hire one of the guys from that rival team and that he has doubts about Gordon's ability on this job. And he basically tells Mike what happened with his wife. And mind you, we haven't talked about this in a second, but throughout this, isn't Mike still going downstairs and listening to more and more of the recordings and we're hearing more and more of Mary and all the multiple personalities? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're hearing yeah. more and more of that. And in the recording sessions, the doctor is like alluding to some big thing that happened. And he's trying to get it out of Mary. And he's trying to like even get it out of the different personalities coming out of Mary too. But they're all kind of keeping that under wraps a little bit. There, there seems to be a clear hierarchy in the personalities. So you hear yeah. Princess and then the doctor sort of says, can I talk to Billy? You know, is Billy there? And then the voice will change and you hear Billy. But they keep talking about this third personality 
Simon, and the doctor keeps sort of trying to get them to let him talk to Simon, and, yeah. you know, Billy and the princess are just not having it. Yeah, and they, they're even saying, like, kind of alluding to that Simon is harmful to Mary as a person, whereas they're kind of more innocent and trying to help Mary, like, Simon is more of a destructive personality. Okay, so yeah, after Phil tells Mike about what happened with Gordon, Jeff walks down the stairwell um, as he's moving room to room, and he sees Hank in the stairwell, and Hank is now wearing sunglasses, and he's listening to his Walkman, and he's just staring out the window, just randomly staring out the window, and I think he says, like, something really strange, like, oh, what are you doing here? Freaks Jeff out. Jeff runs to tell the others, grabs everybody, and they're all like, okay, whatever, Jeff, and of course, when they all come back to the stairwell, Hank's gone. He's just nowhere in the stairwell. They can't find him, and everyone is kind of doubting Jeff on his story, and then this is where kind of things come to a head, where, like, accusations and blame kind of begin to fly. They're all starting to get in an argument with each other, specifically Gordon and Phil are really butting heads, and as it's getting bigger and bigger, they all hear footsteps on the floor above them, and Jeff was like, see you fuckers, that was, that was yeah. right. That was definitely a good m- moment of like, oh shit, did you just hear that? You know, and everybody like has to stop for a minute and it genuinely freaks all of them out. It's in- it's pretty fun. Yeah, and uh, was this also where the infamous line came when they decide to split up? Yes. I'll let you say it, Lord. So Gordon is giving them all orders, and I think he's saying, okay, you come with me, you two go over there, and Phil says, Gordon, and the camera like zooms in on Gordon and then it does this amazing zoom on <laughs> Phil and he goes, fuck you. What the fuck was that? It's Hank! It's Hank! Okay, okay. Jeff, mate, go downstairs, make sure he doesn't turn around. You, you come with me. Hey. Fuck you. And it's just beautiful. Like, it is the most over-the-top. I think when I was watching this with my friends forever ago, we just lost it. And (laughs) the interesting thing about this to me is it did create this mythology where, as I mentioned, I always thought of this as a PG-13 horror movie. So I have been telling this story for several years now, saying that this was a PG-13 movie, and that because, according to MPAA rules, you can only use the F word once in a PG-13 movie. And so, somehow, out of this night with my friends, it came out that, oh, it's because they could only say fuck once, so they had to make it dramatic, and so they do this huge (laughs) zoom-in shot with him and his fingers pointing, and he almost, like, holds out the you a little bit, where he goes, like, fuck you, and it just... (laughs) It it was a thing with me and my friends for, like, years afterwards, so this moment, it means a lot to me. And you told me about the scene, and I was excited for it, and I think we winded up watching it twice when we were watching it, because this scene is, like, the only one that's really out of place with the rest of the movie. It's Because yeah. so it is ridiculous. straight up like a comedy movie scene. Uh, it, it's just weird. Yeah, it's so out of place. Oh, it's like, such a weird scene. David Caruso just fucking acts his ass off on this one fuck you that he delivers. It's fantastic. Yeah, so if you're watching this, get ready for a good belly laugh because it's very unexpected and it's very good. And what is an otherwise very dark and somber movie. Very yeah. much so. And what's so funny is it goes back to Gordon 
and then Gordon just walks away, I think. Like, yeah. there's no <laughs> <Yeah>. response. <laughs> yeah, Gordon just kind of takes it. So, so yeah. yeah, after after that amazing line, they split up. Phil and Jeff decide they are going to head down to the tunnels, which, brilliant fucking move there, guy. Like, knowing that Jeff is afraid of the dark, let's send him down into the tunnels. And then Gordon and Mike go upstairs. And, of course, as soon as they're walking upstairs, Mike's like, oh, I got to go uh, check something. He decides to go downstairs to return to the room. He decides to listen to Mary Dobbs' psych sessions again. And we've been going through all the sessions, like session one, session three, session five. He finally connects and puts up session nine, the final like session in this yeah. series of these recordings. There's been that nagging drive where, you know, there's like a mystery building within those tapes that he's listening to. You know, who is Simon? What's going on? And that's just kind of under his skin in this irritating way. So, yeah, anytime that he has a moment where he can get away from him and go listen, he does. Yeah. And so as the recording plays out, we... Uh, hear the psychologist continuing to ask for Mary's personalities and the events that happened on Christmas Eve and this is where like that montage of different events starts happening while the record plays in the background. This is where I think Gordon actually kind of also wanders off into the courtyard and that's when he decides to go make a phone call in the graveyard because I feel like it was during one of the recordings when he does that. I think it actually might have been earlier. I think that was about midway through the movie where before things really really started to hit the fan. Throughout the whole movie, you kind of get these like visual cues of how quickly Gordon is unraveling uh, and how his life is largely unraveling around him and how he's kind of losing control. And he calls his wife, who again, we don't hear her side of the conversation, um, where he says like, I love you, I'm sorry. And he is like holding back tears. You can see his eyes are clearly, you know, misting over. And then Jeff appears and says, you know, thank you so much for giving me this job. It means so much to me. And then Gordon kind of embraces him while clearly about to just start breaking down crying. Yeah, I remember what scene you're talking about now. It was during one of the earlier session tapes because they also mentioned too that Mary Hobbs' like file, like her patient number was 444. Mm-hmm. And then you see Gordon sitting in the graveyard next to a broken headstone that is number 444. So there's kind of this weird like, again, the ambiguity of is there anything supernatural happening or not kind of thing. You know, is he somehow being imbued with this spirit of Mary Hobbs, this malignant thing, you know, just by proximity, dot, dot, dot. And another thing, too, to add to that theory, because that's the reason why I wanted to bring this scene up so much, is because if there is any scene in this movie that makes the argument for the supernatural, I feel like this is the scene that is the best argument, because like, if him just kind of wandering and discovering this graveyard, calling his wife, I think something happens on the call, like, it's inferred that, like, maybe she hung up on him or something, and he's breaking down, like you said, Lauren. Yeah. I think he even hears another one of those disembodied voices call his name before like it kind of fades into Jeff appearing while he's there talking to Jeff and like they get up and decide to leave the graveyard that's when the camera kind of like zooms in under his feet to show that the broken headstone was the 444 for Mary so Mary was buried there and he was not realizing having this phone call and breaking down right above her grave so yeah if there's anything for the argument for supernatural forces at work here I'd say this is the scene for it but yeah that happens earlier in the movie so going back to this scene during the session nine recording when all this montage stuff happens as the recording plays the montage starts with phil finding hank down in the dark tunnel and this is a pretty creepy reveal because hank is down here half nude still wearing the sunglasses and just muttering to himself and he's like curled in a ball too yeah yeah just real fucked up jeff was either further down the tunnel or going down another part of it the generator just runs out of fuel and jeff is trapped 
in complete darkness and just starts freaking the fuck out. He's in this tunnel too. It's a super long tunnel, but there's all these like rubber gloves hanging from the walls as well. Yeah. Which is really fucking eerie because it just looks like all these hands like reaching out to him in the darkness. And then, yeah, you start to see as the generator is failing, the lights just start to start going out and the darkness just gets closer and closer to him and he's running trying to get away from him because he knows it's coming and then he just gets trapped in this tunnel. The darkness is almost like an entity chasing him down that hallway. It's straight yeah. up like nightmare fuel and just like the darkness swallows him like in a tidal wave. Yeah, and he is clearly, I think, hat off to the actor on that one because he looks terrified, is like yeah. on the brink of tears, sprinting down this hallway and it's still catching up to him. I would be curious to see if all those kind of gloves and all those things that were hanging on the walls, if that was brought in as props. I think I remember reading that that was all just there. Oh my God. Oh my God. That's fucking creepy. So I thought that those weren't just gloves. I thought they were actually like the hazmat suits that the guys had because there's like plastic yeah, they could be, and then yeah. the gloves. That's what I thought. Yeah, you're actually right. It could have been like stuff they brought in. Which actually almost makes the reaching for them a bit worse to me where rather than just a hand, there's a full person outline there. Yeah. Um, and there yeah. is kind of a lot of imagery with the hazmat suits in this movie where there is a scene where it's a very quick flash but there's two hazmat suits sort of standing next to each other and they're both suddenly splashed with red and so they bring a lot to that sort of white blank image of a person in a hazmat suit yeah because yeah, as gordon is kind of becoming more unhinged throughout this movie they also have like that nightmare sequence like you said where like it kind of shows the splash of red on the suits and then like zooms up on someone in one of those suits and covered in blood and i think it's a disembodied voice again calling to him and there's also this image throughout the movie too that we haven't brought up yet but of a chair by itself down one of the hallways just kind of sitting there right in the middle of the hallway as if there's somebody like sitting there waiting for Gordon because it always seems to be Gordon who kind of always goes back to that eerie hallway I think that abandoned chair in the middle of the hallway too is kind of part of the um, movie poster as well I want to say yes it's mm-hmm. the most famous image of the of, in the movie so he finds Phil half naked and muttering to himself poor Jeff runs away from the darkness but gets trapped in it and he's stuck in the hallway screaming Mike who was in the middle of listening to the session nine tape it was starting to get kind of almost do a reveal all sort of thing it dies because the power goes out so mike refills the generator to continue listening to the ninth session tape and he turns the power back on and listens to it where we're introduced finally to mary's most malignant personality simon and we learn that simon apparently took over her because her little brother was teasing her or doing something Mm -hmm. to her and basically to quote unquote protect her simon took over mary stabbed her little brother and then her parents to death. So she kills her entire family on Christmas Eve. Which is actually an amazing reveal. So in that moment, Mike goes to turn on the generator uh, and when he like refills the gas or whatever, the tape recorder actually starts by itself in the basement. And so it it cuts to this basement room where suddenly the lights are on and suddenly this thing is going by itself, which is very creepy. Yes, yeah. And again, that could just be like, oh, well, the power turned back on. The thing was never turned off. So restart again or again, supernatural elements. We don't know. And also, too, this is the same actress doing all these voices. Hats off to her because the Simon voice is yet again completely different than all the other voices. And it's obviously the most demonic sounding voice of them all. Yeah. Has a very sadistic, calm, sadistic feeling to it. Phil finds Gordon finally in Mary's former hospital room after after finding Hank. And Gordon is staring at photos of his own daughter's 
baptism hanging in Mary's former room. Like he took them in, you know, these photos that he had like had like in his in his car in his wallet and using like some of the sticky red chemical stuff that they're using to clean with tacked them all up on the wall and made like his own creepy patient collage out of all of these photos. Yes. <laughs> so that is a hell of like a scene of like reveal and it's kind of also sort of like leading up to the scene like you can see that Phil is holding something in his hand. So it's almost like Phil's a, like maybe going up there to attack him because you don't know what Phil did once he found Hank. Yeah. It just showed him finding Hank and that was it. It's kind of being set up like Phil is about to attack Gordon like maybe Phil is the one that's been doing all of this and mess- did what he did to Hank. Jeff emerges from the tunnels and resurfaces out in another building kind of the outlying building out in the yard and he like runs out of the building and he's out in the middle of the daylight and he's like catching his breath. Holy shit like I trapped in darkness. He goes to the van and I think grabs some Oreos I want to say. Yep. And is just like yes. eating Oreos to unwind from being trapped in the darkness. There specifically is Jif peanut butter, Oreos and then like I think maybe Doritos like there's like or like Nabisco crackers. There's like a few specific food things which I have a fun note about that like once we get to the end. So real quick though where Jeff emerges the giant long tunnel that he got stuck in connects to like an actual house like a full blown like two story like house that's like set in the woods kind of apart from the hospital and my question is what kind of building is that? Like what's the purpose of that? Do you think maybe like a doctor lived there and the tunnels are just kind of an easy access way that he could get back and forth or is it like maybe the groundskeeper's house originally like it just seemed weird that there would be a tunnel underground leading yards and yards and yards away from the hospital that somehow comes out in this building yeah i took it as like a staff member's house of some kind like whether it was like the head doctor yeah or the groundskeeper or somebody or even like a fucking bug out tunnel this is like a way to get out of the hospital if something happens i don't know yeah maybe that's true Hmm. like an emergency kind of thing which yeah fun story there as far as visiting abandoned places so i live in the state capital now and there are weird like nuclear fallout shelter places around jackson like that you know and there are tunnels all over the, the city that crisscross that way they can get like essential staff and political people like out of the buildings and get people into shelter so raymond specifically where our buddy nowacki used to live there are several places throughout that town that have like the nuclear radiation symbol like like a little metal sign that says like capacity x amount of people and like there are fallout shelters underneath those buildings but we went in one place where they showed us like there's literally a hatch in the floor like a giant wheel turn open hatch and we looked down and there was just like a ladder into darkness and it just goes down knowing that like there's also weird tunnels like that that kind of crisscross Jackson makes me very interested to explore that but also I'm fucking terrified of it because I'm claustrophobic so I don't want to go in like enclosed spaces like that that are abandoned like a house that's fine but not a tunnel like that (laughs) plus it's fucking Jackson Mississippi like if I needed any more reason to be terrified of that place yeah really fucking fallout shelters and tunnels so yeah as jeff is unwinding eating oreos uh out of the van because he deserves it after that (laughs) all of a sudden we go back to that pov and it's going towards jeff relatively quickly and jeff obviously recognizes whoever this is and was like oh hey man you know oh i'm sorry i just i wanted to eat some oreos and then the camera zooms right up on him and it cuts to black again we are then treated to Friday. Gordon arrives at the hospital and is radioed by Phil 
still vaguely saying like, hey, we found the culprit of what's going on uh, with Hank and everything. Like, come come here. As he enters the building, he finds Hank is on the floor wrapped in plastic sheeting and still moving around as well, I mind you. Yeah. Meanwhile, after, after that, the replacement worker, the guy that Phil was wanting to hire on from the rival company shows up. His name is Craig and he's played by Larry Fezenden. So this is where our Until Dawn thing wraps back around. So Larry Fezenden is one of these character actors who has been a huge patron to independent filmmakers. He is a writer, director, actor, like a little bit of everything. And he has been working since the late 80s. His vampire movie Habit is great. If anybody's looking for kind of like a vampire, but not vampire kind of modern take on that whole thing in New York, that kind of has a drug addiction parallel. That movie's good. Um, he was also in Jarmusch's Broken Flowers and uh, Wendy and Lucy. Um, and then recent horror movies, uh, he was in Your Next and The Battery and and Jug Face, and We Are Still Here, which we almost did that movie for the beginning of the year. Um, that's, I think, still probably on our list. Um, he did Ty West in a Valley of Violence, but then he wrote the script for Until Dawn. And so, all the stuff about like the Wendigo, and all the different tropes that he kind of wove in there, that's all him. And he plays the, like, crazy firebug guy mm-hmm. that's in the game as well. That's him. Oh, wow. And you would definitely know Larry Fezzedin for sure and anything else that he pops up in because he looks like an even crazier Jack Nicholson if that's yeah. possible yeah he really does I thought the same thing when we were yeah. watching this but yeah Larry Fessenden's great and that's one of those guys that like I love hearing interviews and podcasts with him because he is such a fucking resource to young up and coming filmmakers just with the amount of knowledge that he has and the way that he's helped out people get their shit off the ground and you know like he's been able to literally get projects funded for people just by attaching himself to them as like an executive producer or you know just being in it in a, as like a cameo or something like that so I, I love that dude um, anytime he pops up is fun even in like small things like this where he's barely in it yeah and he also wrote The Man of Medan as well and he also did one or two other games uh, that were kind of psychological horror for PlayStation I think one was a uh, VR game I think it was The Inpatient and the other was Hidden Agenda which was all also kind of like in one of those interactive crime thriller games. I think Inpatient is a VR side game for Until Dawn. And then Hidden Agenda is a game that that same developer made later that actually kind of involves you like with a group of people in the same room using cell phones along with the game. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. I know okay. it's like a I know it's like a crime drama between a reporter and a cop and they're trying to catch a killer and like it's a psychological crime like thriller. Yeah. So kind of horror adjacent. But yeah, he he's been getting involved lately a lot with those games where you play the movie, kinda like Until Dawn, Manama Dan, Hidden Agendas like that, from what I understand, and same with the inpatient. I didn't realize that he had anything to do with Manama Dan. That's interesting. Yeah, so yeah. I wonder if he's gonna be in the the follow up for the dark anthology pictures as well but yeah so he arrives and he kind of starts wandering around looking for the guys being like hey you know he sees the van and like kind of parks next to it and walks into like looking for the guys however he doesn't see the other side of the van as there's a bloody handprint on it and so he he kind of goes in the main room still looking for them can't find anybody as Hank is making his way upstairs he and there's also tarps covering everywhere now like uh, all these tarps like around on the hallway and like in the rooms Phil is suddenly a 
appears standing over Hank saying that he had to do it and that Hank had it coming. And Gordon is kind of like, what the hell is going on? And decides and to Phil's demeanor Hank's- is like totally different at this point. Like his personality yeah, like- and the way he's talking and everything is also like very off to where the character has been. Yeah, completely calm, but menacing at the same time too. And so he removes Hank's sunglasses to discover the lobotomy pick shoved not only in Hank's head, but like deep in there, like all the way up in there, mm-hmm. all the way in there. And he's still, and Hank is still alive muttering, which that's a shitty uh, thing to happen to you in a horror movie. Sucks for you, bro. Yeah. Phil starts yelling at Gordon to wake up. You need to quote unquote, wake up. And as he does that, Craig enters the room, breaks Gordon's dissociative moment because now you're kind of seeing it from Craig's perspective. Phil is not there and Craig just sees Hank's body on the ground with Gordon like standing over him menacingly and weird. Yeah. And Craig still approaches, which if I saw it at that point, my ass would be running or like backing up with a something in my hand to attack. I am not going to approach Gordon. That'd be like if I walked in on you, Mansfield, and you're like standing over somebody all bloodied and like you have a, a yeah. plastic body in there. Like even though I know you and I've known you for a long time, I'd still just like, turn and walk away. Yeah. I, I would at least talk to you from a distance to where you I was not within your striking distance. So of course, Gordon attacks him, puts Craig in a headlock and kind of subdues him and pulls the lobotomy pick from Hank's eye socket and then immediately stabs it into Craig's and what is like one of the more brutal scenes in, in any of the horror movies we've seen. Yeah, that, that scene's super visceral. Just the way that he grips the like handle on the lobotomy pick and starts pulling it out of Hank's head, but Hank's head lifts and kind of raises with it as it's coming out. Like there's just yeah. like that little tug of resistance. Oh, yeah. Ugh. Yeah, it's not particularly super, super bloody, but it is just visceral. I don't think I actually watched it when we watched it. I I think I kind of put a hand up to where I couldn't see it because that was (laughs) gnarly. Yeah, Yeah, like that is that is like a make you cringe sort of kill there. So Gordon now is kind of like in a disassociated state and he starts walking through the room or down the hallway with all the tarps and he starts seeing all the bodies of the other men and he recalls like murdering each one of them. It goes back to like show he was the guy who attacked Hank in the tunnels um, when Hank was going back for the coins. He was the one who straight up fucking sprint attacked poor Jeff as he was eating Oreos and Jeff was like out by the van and was like oh hey man I didn't mean to like eat all the Oreos and then fucking like runs full sprint and like dive tackles him. <laughs> he then attacks Mike after yeah. Mike listens to the session 9 recording is like walking upstairs uh, with the cords and he just like sneaks up on him um, which Again, I thought at the beginning of this movie, when Mike started listening to the recordings, he was the one who was going to like, quote unquote, become possessed yeah. or something happened to. Because he he acts strange throughout the entire movie as well. But I think it's more just his personality than yeah. anything else. He's curious. And that kind of like makes him into kind of a red herring because you think that maybe, yeah, like you said, he's going to be the one that kind of gets, you know, imbued with some kind of weird madness. But it's, yeah, it's Gordon, turns out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and then Phil, like when he was going upstairs to him and it kind of subverted it where you thought maybe Phil was one that was going to attack him. No, he straight up attacked Phil in that scene and killed him. And then as he's doing this, we go back to that scene where it's him like outside in the truck looking out at his house. And it's really like, uh, again, the filter is like all over the place. It's very kind of, we're in full memory now. And you don't see this happen. You just hear it. And there's something a little more unsettling even with that because from what you hear in the memory, 
basically he came home wendy accidentally spilled the boiling water on him in a fit of rage he kills wendy and he actually kills their infant daughter because their infant daughter started crying while this was happening and basically then kills her as well after killing his wife and as he's kind of realizing this he starts freaking out gordon starts freaking out and desperately starts attempting to call wendy to apologize and this is when we find that his cell phone is broken um which anytime anyone was on the phone during the scene they weren't actually on the phone because part of what led to him and phil butting heads a lot is that he knows that he didn't call hank and acted like he called his ex because he had already killed hank a but also b or not already killed but lobotomized hank but be like he also finds out that like phil was full of shit yeah as he like as he discovers his cell phone is broken he's back in mary's room i think looking at the photos we hear the final excerpt from the ninth session tape the psychologist asks mary where do you live simon and simon quote unquote responds i live in the weak and in the wounded doc and then that's how the movie ends that gave me chills yeah the two times i've seen it it gives me such chills i don't like weird voices and that just oh yeah that got and me. even just the concept of like again whether or not there's anything paranormal going on you know i think one of the larger themes of this movie to get right into it this movie is definitely a good exploration of toxic masculinity and it's interesting because it's both like figuratively dealing with that but literally as well with like these men literally being poisoned by the environment that they're in because of the asbestos and the chemicals and everything else you know you can even infer that like the environment itself is fueling all of their terrible behavior and traits and you know ways of thinking and everything but just like everything from like their infighting and picking with each other and the way that like we said Hank like specifically scoops the woman that Phil had been dating um and just all the bravado and like lies and anger and anxiety and just all that bullshit. The way that Gordon like literally bottles up all of his anxiety around having a family. And, you know, they keep talking about how like he's different now that he's like had a kid and it's different and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, just all of that anxiety, not expressing it in healthy ways and not like letting that out, not discussing that with his wife or a therapist for that matter. And just keeping all that bottle up inside to where it finally explodes all of that together and how all that poisons these guys against each other and then having again kind of this weird character of Simon that's in the story as well kind of in the background and how we can look at you know again Simon being or not being some kind of like supernatural thing but just Simon is that deep level of id within everybody that poisons your thinking and makes you insecure and anxious to the point where like you break you know and the fact that like Simon says like you know I live in the weak and the wounded specific like that's so fucking haunting because the weak and the wounded essentially is all of us but it's just at what point and what degree and how far down that slope are we at any given time and just knowing that with the right circumstances and everything else we could all be potentially pushed to this but like men specifically because we don't express our emotions and we don't like have an outlet and a valve for that you know so just building up all that pressure eventually it's just going to explode and you know go everywhere so that's one of the biggest themes of this movie that I think ultimately like makes it long lasting in the way that it is because unfortunately like that 
that's still part of our society. You know, things things are the way they are. There's still a lot of that behavior that goes on generationally and just isn't going anywhere anytime soon. And it's something that, like, I know personally, to varying degrees, I've had to struggle with just the anxiety and self-doubt and, like, the fear of having a family and wondering where money's going to come from and wondering what disasters are right around the corner and just all of that stuff. Like, that's, I think, the biggest thing that, like, I have fear about now at this point in my life um, is just making sure that I can care for my family and then the fact that yeah, I don't have this fear. I'm not like on the edge of like spousal abuse or anything, but you know, just knowing that that anxiety can like spill out in ways that are not healthy and you know, ways that can like affect the rest of your family, you know, so that that's definitely like the biggest theme of this movie to me that really makes this real and drives the fear home. I wholeheartedly agree with you. And what I do love about this movie is going back to the idea of these small moments where you see all of these tiny things where Gordon's anxiety is coming out. So one part I really liked is in the very beginning when they're bidding on the job, the guy does say like, hey Gordon, you know, I know you guys had this baby and I know you kind of had to try really hard, like implying that maybe, you know, there's something wrong with Gordon that he wasn't able to father a child easily. Yeah, and he's older. And he's older and his face kind of gets very tight. And I think uh, going back to the skill of the actor where he is able to sort of show those reactions of of someone who's clearly not happy with what you've just said, but they're going to hide it and going to say, mm, okay, yeah, I mean, you didn't have to bring that up, but okay. Where it's, he's yeah. clearly so angry at the idea that people know that he had to like try to have a child. You are going back to what you mentioned about the financial desperation. But one thing I did like too, are the moments when I think Hank actually says it, where their whole insecurity about their job not being a good enough job, where Hank refers to it as like shucking fiber, uh, where he says yeah. something to, I think it's Mike, where he goes like, you shuck fiber just the same as I do. And there is that anxiety of, okay, we do this crappy job. Yeah, we kind of make money, but also we're not really well thought of um, and not really having uh, a lot of prestige or respect with their job. Yeah, and that was kind of after you find out that not only did Mike go to law school and was on that path and he dropped out, but that his dad is like a super successful DA and has done all this big shit. To Hank's point, Mike might be kind of lording a little bit of his like status over them but Hank kind of has to bring him back down to earth and say like yo motherfucker like you dropped out of that you couldn't hack that life and so now you're doing the same thing that I'm doing so you're no better than me in that sense which again like all of that fear and anxiety too of like what do I do that we had a conversation with my sister-in-law when she was here around just what am I gonna do like I don't know what I want to major in blah 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 so you know that's definitely a fear that like all of us have to deal with specifically too with every one of these characters there's so many facets of like things from like the complex you know like Gordon situation with his family to just simple bullshit like Jeff being afraid of the dark literally just the most basic primal fear that you're born with as a child which is just fear of the dark you know every every facet of that with these characters comes out and is exacerbated by like the environment that they're in and just the fact that they're all kind of claustrophobically smushed against each other in abrasive ways over the course of this movie and the the two things I wanted to bring up before we wrap it going back to Simon for a second and you had kind of touched upon this I like the different interpretation where you can interpret it as he is just a stand-in for like that shadow self that lives in all of us yeah um like the deep id like 
like you were saying. And I mean, it's even explored in like shit like Persona where like you're literally fighting shadow selves, but like that shadow self of all your like deep and darkest desires and secrets and uh, you like unhinged, primally unhinged. I like it being either part of the collective unconsciousness and like it kind of rears its head in ways like this or it's straight up being like a supernatural kind of entity that just feeds on humanity whether it's like a demon or something else or just a combination of both you could take it as like maybe we have to meet it halfway but it's also there it's all up to your interpretation so yeah that that I live in the weak and the wounded and just that idea of this thing known as Simon living in everyone who is broken and is just waiting for them to snap so it can take over and wreak havoc is fucking creepy and and, but also very poignant and then the other thing too with all these varying personalities kind of clashing each other uh, Lauren and I had this conversation a little bit after we watched it but each one of these guys from kind of more innocent all of us struggle to this to straight up like this is a horrible part of who you are and you need to work on it all of these guys represent I feel like different facets of toxic masculinity yeah. Because Hank is obviously like, I'm trying to be alpha male, chauvinistic, probably kind of a little bit sexist guy who feels like he has something to prove. I mean, they all, a lot of them have something to prove, but especially him. He's the most braggadocious about it. Mike is the one that's more of not telling everyone what he should be. He's curious, but he's also quiet. And then, yeah, he's also, like you said, lords over everyone a little bit, thinking that by the fact that he got even any bit of advanced schooling, even though he dropped out or failed out even, makes him feel superior to everyone when he's in the thick of it just like everyone else. Jeff is kind of almost like the more naive naive aspect of like, he's obviously like a good kid with a good heart, but he's almost like wanting to be accepted by a lot of these men who are not the best role models to have, but the fact that they're older than him and some of them braggadocious like Hank, he feels like he he needs to be a part of them and be accepted to them when maybe he doesn't need to be. And that's why Hank even has that conversation with him. Like, you don't want to be doing this for the rest of your life. Have an exit plan. Have an exit plan. Like basically almost the one, one of the few times Hank is actually kind of being a decent guy of just saying like, we're not the best role models, kid. It really reminds me down here in the South, a lot of those kind of late teenagers who go to work on oil rigs, you know, and they're just around all these other like, you know, some guys who are doing that by choice and have like made a success story out of doing that work, you know, again, like Gordon and Phil, for instance, but then you have these guys who like, that's just the only thing they can do. And they're just not the best role models are not the best people to be around and you know it's it's very much the same conversation and talk that they were having just imagine instead of doing you know asbestos work they're working on an oil rig same idea and Phil is very much he's not the best of friends to Gordon like he goes behind Gordon's back a lot in this movie like especially in that scene where he's acting like he's talking to his ex on the phone but also like going behind his back and getting drugs when he knows that Gordon doesn't want anyone using while they're on the job yeah and constantly challenging Gordon's leadership and then like you were saying them just kind of also implying that like hey maybe Gordon you couldn't get it up when you're trying to conceive a child and just all this shit and then yeah and then there's Gordon who well like I mean he murdered his wife and his kid like he didn't know how to handle his stress basically. Actually building off of that it was interesting to me how this did echo in certain ways cases of family annihilators 
uh, which are typically men who, due to life stressors and typically cases of failure, where either they will lose their job uh, or they will kind of lose financial security or their wife uh, decides to divorce them and like take the children, will murder their entire families. And there were sort of echoes of that where you do see the case with Mary because that is what she did. And then you see it with Gordon where he did, granted in his case, he did sort of lose his temper and maybe had external stressors. And maybe if Simon is an entity, he had this entity in him at that point yeah. where, and he killed his family. So it was interesting that there were echoes of that. Uh, and I do think building off of what you said about Phil, Derek, is how Phil's attitude changed right after Gordon. They sit in the car and they have this heart to heart where Gordon says, you know, I did, I, I hit Wendy. I, I don't know what happened. And he sort of admits all this to Phil. Phil's attitude toward him changes in a huge way. And it's not entirely clear if it's this sort of like, okay, something's wrong with you. This degree of revulsion of you did this thing that men just should never do. That's just a blanket. As a man, you never do that. Or if it's okay, you know, yeah, I need to get you out of this team and you're not in control anymore. So you're endangering us. And this underlying current of like, now's my chance. So it is kind of unclear what his motivation is there. So I don't think you can entirely give him that that degree of, okay, he acknowledges that this was a bad thing to do. And that's entirely why he is shifting his attitude. Or he knows it's a bad thing to do, but he also like uses it as the, like you were saying, as an opportunity to overthrow Gordon basically. And just yeah. like, ah, well, you're a shithead, but I'm also, I don't care about like why you're a shithead. I'm going to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and then I I like the idea that Simon is revealed through Mary, but then also is basically manifested in, in Gordon, showing that Simon doesn't give a shit about any of that when it comes to like people, whether you're a woman, a man, whatever your gender is, Simon is just in people and is that uh, underlying darkness in everyone. Yeah. So I, I thought it was interesting that they used Mary instead of Mary's little brother as like the one who committed these murders on her entire family. Mm-hmm. And there is something a bit more sinister about it too in the voice changes where if you have a woman and suddenly there's a man's voice coming out of her, there is something kind of disassociative about that. So it does yeah, create a bit absolutely. more of an impact. Yeah. Two more quick notes real quick before we wrap up. One, there was a subplot that they cut from the movie that was about a homeless lady that was like a former patient and she's still kind of lurking in the complex, spying on them. And she witnesses like all the murders of the men and then she kills Gordon at the end as he's like in Mary Hobbs' room trying to talk on the phone. The subplot ended up getting cut because audiences like mistook her for being Mary Hobbs. And it was just generally kind of confusing. But the moment with the footsteps upstairs, which that's probably one of the more clear cut, like there's something going on physically with them in the building. And you're you kind of think, you know, maybe it's maybe it's Hank's you know, footsteps that they hear upstairs. But that was supposed to be the homeless lady. Second note, and again, this goes back to like the peanut butter and Oreos. I saw this on IMDb, so I don't know like what the veracity is of this, but this movie gets a lot of comparisons to The Shining because it's about men going crazy, like in a very specific place and atmosphere, right? Jack Torrance in The Shining, in the scene where he's locked in the pantry, when he like comes to later, we see that he's busted open a package of Oreos and a jar of peanut butter. It's the same exact items that Gordon is bringing home in the flashbacks. I never, holy shit, I never realized that. Yeah. 
Yeah, like in his bag, he's got like peanut butter Oreos and then like the roses for his wife. That's also like what's in the work van later that like Jeff goes to eat some of the Oreos. You do also see an empty jar of peanut butter in like the tunnels when Hank is there that night to like retrieve the coins. He like shit, walks across right. like an empty thing of peanut butter and it's like, the fuck is this? And you kind of just write it off as maybe there's somebody like living in the tunnels, like a homeless person, whatever. But it's maybe still too early for you to really connect the dots that it's Gordon. Peanut butter and Oreos, like there's definitely kind of like a weird connection to The Shining in that sense, which again, intentional, maybe, maybe not, who knows, but somebody on IMDb did note that and I thought that was kind of funny. The footsteps thing you mentioned, uh, going back to that real quick, you're right, since they cut out that woman on the ground subplot and you just hear the footsteps and you assume it's Hank. Yeah. But it now, because they left it in, now it could actually be more of a supernatural element because Hank is in the tunnels at that point. Yeah. They When they break up to split up, they go upstairs, they go downstairs. The two that go downstairs, Phil is the one who finds Hank. Gordon and them find no one upstairs. And really it's Gordon by himself because Mike goes off to listen to the tapes. And Gordon, when he's up there, to our knowledge, sees no one. And it's almost kind of implied that the footsteps he heard are near that chair that's sitting in the middle of the hallway upstairs. Yeah. So yeah, you're you're kind of right about that because all of them hear the footsteps. It's not just Gordon. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's not just in like somebody's head. They hear the footsteps. And again, originally it was the homeless lady, but that was all cut. So now it's a little more enigmatic. And I'm kind of glad that like that subplot did get cut, if I'm being honest. I like the uncertainty and ambiguity of where Gordon ends up. Yeah. So I, I'm very happy that you brought up the peanut butter because I've been checking my notes and I had a, a page and several paragraphs, but all the way at the bottom of like six paragraphs, I just have the words peanut butter scare. And this whole episode, I was trying to think, why did I write peanut butter scare? Did I start this on a grocery list? Like, why is that on here? (laughs) And so apparently the peanut butter scared me. I don't know. Maybe I'm upset by calories. So yeah, I made note of it. It was probably during the the tunnel because it was kind of weird that I was there. Which I did kind of like. I think what I might have been thinking is that it's sort of a, a light fake out scare where you suddenly see this object in the darkness and it's just peanut butter and yeah. it's just such a weird you know the fake out scare before the big scare but maybe that's what i was thinking i don't remember it's been a couple <laughs> weeks all right cool cool well um i think that is gonna be it for this week that was session nine from 2001 check it out it's definitely worth seeking out for sure it is on blu-ray from scream factory streaming is a little bit kind of weird i mean you can obviously like pay to rent but i don't think i found it streaming for free anywhere but yeah definitely worth checking out good times lauren great to have you on again yeah, thanks thank for coming on thank you so on. much this is so fun yeah, absolutely do you have anything in particular that you want to plug before we wrap it up not in particular i would plug you guys but this is your podcast so presumably someone's already listening but you guys are great so keep doing what you're doing thanks oh you're welcome thank you and i do want to do the strangers at some point i know it's on your list and i want to (laughs) call that one (laughs) all right i'm i'm down like i i love that movie but that's where horror starts to hit me for sure so oh you're you don't like the strangers huh yeah i have to keep that in mind yeah that one's good i'll save my opinions for the podcast which i will start making notes for now so heads 
heads up. Cool. All right. Once again, we are Watch If You Dare, a uh, horror movie podcast. Uh, this is Aaron Mansfield. We have Derek Devers-Smith and then lovely Lauren as well once again. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. Stitcher, CastBox. All of them. All of that shit. Definitely check us out there. Check us out on the socials as well at Watch If You Dare on Twitter and Facebook. Um, once again, big thanks to my brother Jesse for the bumps the beginning and ends of the episodes as well. Great music he's supplied us with. Also, Thank just you, kind Jesse. of as a shout out to him, their poor kitty cat is dealing with some health issues right now. So, just FYI, if anybody wants to hop on his numerous Bandcamp pages and throw him a couple bucks and get some music in return, that could definitely help out with some of the unexpected cat expenses that they have right now. So, definitely check out his stuff and throw him a buck or two. Beyond that, um, that's pretty much it. So, Derek, you got anything else? Yeah, uh, you can support us by supporting Nightmare Threads. Uh, once again, you can find their referral link uh, pinned to our page on, I think, Facebook, but definitely on our Twitter. Yep. Um, use the referral link there and use the code watch if you dare to save 10%. Um, but yeah, thank you for that as well. I don't have anything else. I can't think of a clever cold open for CSI Miami that involves Sally, so I'll throw it to one of you guys to either end it or think of something clever. Sally lives in the silly and the debauched of all of us. Doc. Yeah! Yeah!